Hey guys, welcome to the Filming with Josh podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Milligan, and this is episode number 107, interview with Josh Haygood. This is the Filming with Josh podcast, brought to you by Rustic River Media. Welcome to the videographer's home for tips, tricks, and how to make flicks. Thanks for listening in to another episode of the Filming with Josh podcast. If you're new to the podcast, Filming with Josh is your home for tips, tricks, and how to make flicks. Here on the podcast, we talk about all things video, from script writing, storyboarding, to how to price your work. We talk about it all on the podcast. If you're watching this on YouTube, just know that we are available on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, which I heard is actually going away in the next few weeks. So if you are listening on Google, you will might have to go to Spotify or listen on Apple Podcasts. Um, we are also available on Podbean as well. And if you are listening onto one of those platforms, just know that as of the beginning of the year, we are now available on YouTube. So you can watch along if you would rather do that. Today, I am welcoming my new friend, Josh. Hey, good. Josh, how are you doing? Good, man. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Um, today, Josh, I want to just get to know you a little more. We recently connected on LinkedIn, and uh, I, I want to talk a little bit more about you, who you are, your background. So why don't you kick it off and just tell us a little bit about who you are, where you are, um, how you got started in video, and what you do today. Yeah, great. Um, Don, I, thanks for having me on. This is, this is really exciting to be able to talk to a lot of other people in this business. I feel like we're, we gain so much by learning from others. And I'm, I'm all about that. Um, I, I started, I, I went to school, I went to art center, um, in California, um, really to be a photographer. And that's really where it started. Uh, my dad was a photographer, um, he actually in Vietnam, he was a war photographer, which I always thought was pretty badass. And then that is. commercial it was pretty cool. Uh, so he's, yeah. he did that. Um, and that really just hearing those stories really got me interested in this idea of how to tell a story visually. And I always thought that was fascinating. Um, so after he came back, he was a commercial photographer and, and he used to have models and things in the house, you know, the, that's a seamless setup with the lights and everything. And as a kid, I'm like, this is great. If you have a camera, girls come to your house and pose. And this is like the coolest <laughs> thing ever, even at five and six years old. I mean, he had me. Um, but I really, I think I grew up looking at a lot of Nat Geo and very interested, you know, by how a master can tell a story in one frame with no sound, which is a still photo. But when it's done well, you can go to, you, you can go to a, a certain, you know, photograph and it tells the whole story visually all by itself um, in one frame. I thought that is masterful. How do I do that? So um, I really wanted to do that. So I pursued photography. I went to Art Center um, and I was a commercial photographer for years uh, in California um, and eventually got picked up by the UN of all people. Um, the UN sent me around the world for almost three years um, taking pictures and videos for their UNESCO project which is the agency that looks over the world heritage sites. So, um, you know, the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem and the Hanging Gardens of Babylon and all these incredible things, um, they protect these sites. And at that time in the late 90s, the internet was coming online and they thought, wouldn't it be amazing to have photos and videos of these places anyone can watch? And VR and all that was sort of new then, but we were experimenting. So they sent me around the world to take pictures and videos of these incredible sites. Um, I got to go to uh, Petra in Jordan. 
um, where Indiana Jones went, you know, that, that incredible place. I got to be there for a bunch of days and, and actually stay there and live there for, with the Bedouins, which was just incredible. I got to go to Cuba, which in those days you couldn't do. I had a diplomatic passport, so I kind of got some special, special things. That was amazing. I lived in Europe for a while. So as a young person in my early 20s, basically thrown to the world, I got this free uh, around the world ticket, essentially, to go and see these incredible places and um, tell these stories. And that really, really lit the fire for um, wanting to make a career in visual storytelling. And then everything flowed from there. Man, that's amazing. You went to some incredible places. I mean, even today, now that Cuba's opened up, for example, still not a lot of people that I've met have been down yep. there. I mean, any any like memories that really stick out to you in some of the places you've been? <laughs> well, since you brought up Cuba, so in those days, Cuba was completely closed. I'm obviously a white guy from America. It's hard to, I do speak Spanish, um, so that helped a lot. Um, I was there under sort of official cover with the UN, but still I'm on my own. I'm just a guy showing up on a plane with a sort of funny looking passport. Um, and so uh, my buddy had told me, okay, when you get there, this is how it works. You're in a different place. This is not America. Um, they said, when you get off the plane, you know, dress nice, be very polite. And when you go to do your passport, there's a process, which I learned. So in most places you've been to, you get off the plane, there's just a big open line. There's a border person. Where are you going? How long are you staying? They stamp your passport. In Cuba, there's doors. So you go through a door and one door closes and there's a closed door on the other side. And you're in this little room alone facing this border person, this government official. And they kind of look you up and down and they, they can tell I'm not supposed to be there technically. Who are you? Well, I'm for the UN. What's the UN? And talking in Spanish and the whole thing. And I was told if you take five pesos and slip it in the, the passport, everything will be smooth. So I did. I took it with, you know, kind of in my pocket and I slid the passport under and I saw him open it. He slid the bill out and put it in his pocket and stamped it. And that was oh my it. gosh. I'm in the country. That's it's like on the one hand, that's really cool story. But on the other hand, it's kind of scary that you had to like slip some money to get into country. And now what? You're just there on your own. Yeah, I was there on my own. And so, they, you know, I, a good thing is I spoke the language so I could kind of, you know, get by. But, you know, they're kind of looking at you like, what do we do with this guy? You know, kind of thing. And it's a, you know, it's a different kind of country. It's not a free, open country like I'm used to. And I had to really be very aware of that. But I got in and I spent two weeks there. Um, I went all over the island, which is huge, um, from one end all the way to Trinidad, which is all the way on the other end, you know, to Havana. I really saw the country. Uh, I was on horseback. I mean, I got to do incredible things. Um, but it was really like it was a, the most different place I've ever been. And I've been all around the world. This was the most closed place that I've ever been to. And usually you've, you know, you've traveled around the world. Um, you, everywhere you go, there's Coca-Cola and there's you know, Domino's Pizza or whatever, McDonald's. There's American influence everywhere, usually. This country, really, there isn't. You have the old cars from the 50s, which is sort of iconic. But the the flat that I stayed in had a refrigerator with instructions in Russian. It had an air conditioner with instructions in Chinese. You know, it was nothing that I could make any sense of that I could understand. And I was like, this is a very, very, the most different place that I've ever been to. Um, and I'd been to the Middle East and a lot of places. This was the most different place, which was fascinating. 
There's paintings on the wall, Yankees get out, you know, and all these. It's just cool. Like just old school kind of government propaganda, uh, which I thought was fascinating. And um, I really was able to get into that culture, um, see that island and, and see things that at least at that time, Americans couldn't see with their own eyes. And that really was special. Um, and I, I, it's those kind of experiences that really told me I'm doing the right thing. I'm, I love this. This is amazing. Um, and I knew I didn't want to stop. Man, that had to have been fascinating and intimidating all at the same time. Do you think that you could have pulled it off if you didn't have the ability to speak a little Spanish? No, I could no, no, because they don't really speak English there. Maybe now, but then no, um, some people did, but in terms of government people and people, the kind of people you'd sort of need to talk to if something happened, no. Um, without that, I don't know what they would have done. Uh, I don't know. Um, there were times, I'll admit, I, I pretended not to speak Spanish because I wanted to kind of know what's going on and spy yeah, a little yeah. bit and that kind of thing. I did that. Um, but when I needed to, you know, get somewhere, buy a plane ticket or a train ticket or something, you know, I, all of a sudden I could speak the language. But it got hairy. Um, even, even, you know, moving around the country, you're being watched. There's soldiers everywhere with big guns and that's not something I'm used to seeing. So that was an adjustment and they're watching you. You're a white guy. You don't fit in. You stand out. They're looking at you. Who are you? They stop you and question you. Where are you from? What are you doing here? Where'd you come from? And I just kind of got used to that being the norm. Um, it was a little scary at first. Um, but we stayed in a, I stayed in a, um, a flat with a local guy who was kind of helping me out, um, which was pretty cool. The power would go out all the time. There's lightning storms at the middle of night and it just is dark and there's no AC and you kind of just roll with whatever you have. Um, up until the last night, um, I was staying in a, in another flat of someone who I, who I'd met and who I was interviewing and they, they said, yeah, stay the night. It's easy. Their flat lost power that night. The elevator broke down with people trapped in it. It was just kind of everything at once. I'm like, this, this is a different kind of place. <laughs> like, is this building just going to crumble underneath me? I don't know. It was all things that I'm just not used to. Um, and I, I ended up the next morning heading out to the airport and I got a, a private cab, which as a tourist, you're not supposed to do, but I'm like, hey, do me a favor. And when we got to the airport, the cabbies like take the money and put it under the seat and hand it to me under the seat so that the guards don't see you doing it because he could get in trouble for driving me around. And we, he stopped me short of the airport. I had to walk the last, you know, 100 yards. It was just it was all so sketchy. It was kind of great. Um, I got to say, I was maybe a little relieved when I got on the plane and I'm flying back home. I'm like, OK, <laughs> I don't know. It was you really feel like you're in a very different kind of place. But as a documentarian, as, a, as someone looking to sort of tell this story, nothing could have been more exciting at the time. It, it Just to be thrown into such a different kind of environment with different people, different language, different everything, really was exactly what I was after. Um, and that, that was part of a long uh, relationship I had with the UN, having those kinds of incredible experiences. Were you freelancing or contracting for the UN? Uh, I was contracting for- Or were you an employee? Uh, I was not an employee of them. There was an, a middle agency that worked with them that had hired me. Um, an agency in San Francisco had hired me. So um, I worked for them specifically, but I was on uh, a multi-year kind of open contract until I wanted to stop. They had me on for years and sent me all over the place, which was just an incredible privilege. 
Absolutely. I've heard it be been said before for people that are in this industry that a camera is like a passport that opens up the ability for you to travel around the world. And I totally agree with that. Um, when you were talking about Cuba, it reminded me of years ago, I did a shoot in Pakistan and I felt the same way when we arrived. Like people didn't speak a lot of English there. Very different culture than what I'm used to. And I've traveled to other places, but this was definitely like the most unique. And I just remember I mean, I definitely was the only white guy there. Everybody, like, we'd be driving through town and people would be tapping on each other's shoulder and pointing in our car, you know, and it made you feel kind of uncomfortable at first. But then the longer you, I was there, like, the more I started to realize, like, man, people are just people no matter where they are in the world. People are just people. And it's really amazing that this camera gives us the opportunity to travel around the world and just meet other people that are just like us, just with different culture. And what a cool opportunity that, that, that a camera opens for people like us. It's it's super true. Um, it's super true. In and it, you know, a camera gets you in places that other things just don't. Um, to be able, a camera sort of to people in general, it sort of feels important. I mean, your tourist camera maybe is different, but when you have a you know proper gear and you look like you're doing something professional, people go like, oh, that looks important, uh, and they give you access. As as they as you know, yeah. they give you access to some incredible places. Um, even well, I went to Jordan uh, for a while, uh, Jordan and Palestine, actually, which was super different. Um, and just getting off the plane, it was that same experience of like, I need if as long as I'm in this role, people see me as kind of an other and they sort of will leave me alone. And that was my attitude of like, if I'm sort of working, I look like I'm doing something that doesn't quite pertain to them. Maybe they'll just leave me alone, which they did to, uh, for the most part. Um, I did also have a guard with an AK-47 who followed me around everywhere, so that might have helped. I, I don't know, um, but they told me that's that that what, was necessary. That's what we had in Pakistan, too. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, that's not something I'm used to, but hey, uh, great. <laughs> stay, <laughs> stay by me, bro. You know the neighborhood better than I do. You know, let me know what I got to do. Uh, but it, it, it is an incredible passport. Um, they took me to a church in, in Jordan, in Amman, that they said is the oldest Christian church anywhere in, in Asia, anywhere in the Middle East, anywhere, anywhere near, you know, Jordan. Um, and that was amazing. And then they said, do you want to see the book room? I'm like, what is a, that doesn't make any, what's a book room? Down a little tiny, little tiny staircase down below the church was this really small little, sort of basementy little room that looked like no one had been in there in a very long time. And it had these, all these rows and rows of books. And they were explaining to me, these are all ancient texts, handwritten ancient texts from thousands of years ago in, in a Christian texts and Muslim texts and all these collection of all these old uh, religious books. And they said, um, do you want to see one? Do you want to open it? Yeah. Okay. And I pulled it off the shelf and it was so dusty. It, these books hadn't moved, I don't know, in a hundred years. They hadn't been touched. No one had been in this room in a really, really long time. It was just something so special and ancient and privileged and amazing about being in that room. How many people get to go in that room? Not how many tourists to the country get to go in the room? Probably not. How many people have even seen pictures of the inside of this room? It was so cool. Um, and it was one of those moments of like, if I didn't have a camera, probably they'd say, oh, down there's a cool room and we'll tell you about it later. You don't need to go down there. We'll show you a photo. But if you're the photographer, you kind of need to be there to, you know, get your shot or whatever. And it really is, it's the coolest passport. Um, if you know what you're doing, you, you, people will let you in and give you experiences you absolutely can't have any other way. 
Man, I totally agree. Now that's amazing. So I, as a Christian myself, would have loved to have gone to that church and underneath into that book room. That would have been fascinating. That would have been really cool. Um, such an amazing opportunity that you had. That's I, I, It reminds me, I was in Africa for a shoot once, and there you said, like, how many people would ever get to go in that room? And it's true, because I remember being in Africa one time, and we were on this private property that had this little cave, and they asked us if we wanted to go to the cave, because, again, we were the guys with the cameras. And they, they lead us into this cave, and there's these petroglyphs that only, like, 10 people I've seen in the last, you know, how, who knows how many hundreds of years. And we're just walking around looking at these petroglyphs that are, that are thousands of years old and, and hardly anybody's ever seen them and I'm just there getting to like take it all in and there's no way without the camera that I'd get to go there um, it's just it's just incredible what an incredible job we have it is it, it's it's a privilege to it's it's a privilege to do something you like in any profession that's 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 always a privilege because it never feels like work I mean it's just it's cool but um, the access is is a very special thing and getting to go places and have experiences that most people never get to have is is something that's it's just really cool and to do that and make a living doing that is like what could be greater than that nothing (laughs) (laughs) Nothing. that's why we do it that's why we do it well so you did that with the un and then where did you go from there like what happened next um so i came back i did several years with them which was amazing i went all around the world um and then i came back and and i sort of went back to commercial still photography it's where I came from. It's what I trained in. It's kind of what I knew. Uh, and I worked in a studio, uh, actually, in San Francisco, in a photo studio for a while, um, it, which which was great. Um, I didn't think I would sort of be a catalog photographer for life. But in those days, it was shooting four by five cameras on film. And it was shooting transparency, not even negative. So this is going to seem a little jargony for kids that are young people. I say kids, 20-somethings that are used to iPhones where you click it and that's it. When you shoot on film, you have to be very, very exacting about your exposure because there's not sure. a lot of leeway. And if you're shooting Chrome, which is um, slide film for um, people that don't know, um, you have to be very exact with your exposure. So this was shooting all the most difficult technical things. It was shooting strobe uh, light sources. So you have to know what you're doing with strobes. It was shooting macro photography of diamond rings and things. So you're you're doing extreme close-ups, which is very tricky when you're on a Bellows 4x5 style camera. It's shooting film. It's all of those complications. So from a technical standpoint, I think it was really a, a masterclass in photography in very precise lighting, very precise camera work, very precise exposure. And I really liked that side of it because it gave me the technical skills I needed to walk onto any set, any type of production, didn't matter what it was, and know that technically I knew how to light and shoot and I knew what I was doing. Um, and that that really was the background that I needed um, going forward. Um, it, it gave me the platform to know that no matter what I approached, I'd be able to, to be successful. Um, so I ended up moving to New York and I went there, I thought to be a still photographer, um, and actually ended up falling right into video almost right away. Um, I did some graphic design for a while to kind of get into that world and meet people, but it fell pretty quickly to video. And I ended up reaching out to MTV at the time, which is, you know, 2004, probably good 20 years ago. And I reached out to MTV and I said, you don't know me. But I know you. I think you're cool. I know how to run a camera. What do you think? <laughs> just on a whim, effect. just like on any, a whim. Any, just on a whim. 
<laughs> on a whim. I didn't know anybody in, in TV at all. I certainly didn't know anybody at MTV. I just watched it and I thought, wouldn't it be cool to work for MTV? So I just reached out <laughs> to them and I was like, I know how to run a camera. And what do you think? And they said, great, bring in your video reel. I don't have a video reel. I'm a still photographer. <laughs> so I called my sister. My sister at the time and her her uh, partner um, were had a fashion brand. They made jeans. And they were okay. going around Soho trying to sell their jeans. So I thought, yeah, I got a video camera. Let me just follow them for a couple of days. I had Final Cut Pro on my computer. I'll just make a little something that feels like a little something. I did a little reel for them and it was fun and music and put some stuff together. And I sent it to MTV and they said, great, come in. <laughs> that was my reel. It was my sister. Uh, I didn't tell them it was my sister, of course. So I got the <laughs> meeting and they said, great. They said, um, we're going to start you small. I hope you're okay with that. Um, we're going to have you go do a casting tape, which doesn't even air. It's in purely internal. Um, we're going to send you to Memphis, Tennessee to shoot this kid who wants to be on one of our shows. And that'll be your start. Like, okay. So they had a little, a little bag with a, I don't know, probably a PD-150 or some kind of old school mini DV camera. Uh, and a pair of headphones, crappy headphones and like two blank tapes and a battery and like, like, like the starter kit that you get on Amazon when you buy a video camera for your family, like not real high tech, but I was thrilled. I'm like, I'm in the game. Let's do this. And that was my first gig was, was going to Memphis, Tennessee, uh, for one day to shoot a, a casting reel for a kid who it turns out didn't even end up making the show. <laughs> he never got picked, but it helped me get in with them and I got picked. Um, and I ended up actually starting to produce shows for them. It was actually your interview. You just didn't know it. It was my interview and I think, so I, I, I videoed, I, I spent the day with this kid in Memphis. I don't know, I didn't at the time know Memphis. There's a fine side of Memphis. There's a fine, you know, part of town. And then there's sort of another part of town where you maybe want to not stop for too long. I've been to that type of part, part of and have stopped. <laughs> it's just, <A> sketchy. <laughs> those, there are those areas. And so I was lost. This is pre-GPS. I'm lost. And I'm, I'm in kind of not a great area, but eh, whatever. And I pull the car over and I'm just trying to go through my maps and figure out what I'm doing. And seven or eight people approach the car all at once. And I was oh, like, gosh. whoa, what's going on here? And I'm like, you can have the car. It's a rental. I don't care. Take the car. They thought I was there to purchase whatever various goods they happened to be selling on that street corner. And I wasn't interested. Hey, you want this? You want that? You want that? I was like, I want to go is what I want to do. And I want to stay alive today. So I want to do that. And I kind of just ran off and it was like a little freaky. But what I didn't realize is I'd had, I had the camera set up because I was doing this little personal diary of like, here I am in Memphis and just playing. The camera was running because I was shooting out the front of the car. It was all caught. And it stayed on the casting tape and it went back to MTV and they called me and they're like, oh my God, are you okay? Why? What that do you mean? That is hilarious. Well, you got, you got, you're, you, you were surrounded and oh yeah, I forgot. Oh, was that on camera? And they're like, oh my God. But what they said was, this job is not always straightforward and easy. And we sort of need people that can roll with whatever. And you seem like a pretty cool customer. Can we send you out again? Yes. And then it was that time it was two days and then it was three days and that's how I got my start. So did you stay on contract with them or did they end up bringing you in house or how did that work? Um, so I was inside for about three and a half years. I was just steady, steady. Um, 
they send you out all the time. I mean, when you're inside a network, it's super busy. They don't have that many people. So if you go on one shoot, you come right back and deliver the tape. And it's like, great, we got this next thing. You're leaving in two days. You're going here. You're going there. It's like, great, fine. Keep me busy. Uh, went all over the country. Uh, worked on lots of different shows. Um, sometimes it was casting. Sometimes it was filling in second camera. Just anywhere they could put me, they would put me. Um, and I sort of built this reputation as a guy that knew how to run a camera. I think the difference was I'd come from a very formal training, formal art school, formal, like in the dark room, developing film by hand type of thing, then into a studio where it was very technical lighting and that kind of thing. I had the travel experience from being around the world. Those were the key skills, as it turns out, to really do that job well. Um, and a lot of people in those days, and maybe still some now, they can turn the camera on and they can find the red button, but they don't really have like a real background in running a camera. They're a story producer who just was given a camera to shoot a third camera for a scene and then somehow started shooting shows or something, which just happens a lot. But they're not really a shooter in a formal sense. So they saw somebody who really understood like how to light up interview and how to set things up and how to do things properly. And that immediately catapulted me forward and the, the opportunities just started rolling in like crazy. Plus, you had the background of kind of having to roll with the punches, going to places like Cuba, Jordan, Palestine, yeah. stuff like that. And so you had this background of being able to just adapt. And I'm sure when yeah. you mesh the two together, that was probably a perfect fit for MTV. It, it really was. And I, I think the, you know, when you're going out on a shoot, you're linking up with a local producer, whoever they have on the ground already that's running the show. So you interact with these people and then they're they're calling back. OK, this guy came in. He worked for us. Whatever, I guess they must have said I did a good job because that really accelerated the offers. Um, but once I kind of knew the players and everything, then I was really in. And then it was just one thing after another after another. And that went for several years, working on one show after another. Um, and then at some point, uh, about four years in, I think, um, I had my own production company. So I sort of broke away in that sense and I would run everything from there forward as a producer for MTV, but through my own production entity, which allowed me to pick all my own people, my own editors, my own everything, run the shoot the way I want, plan it the way I want. Um, and I love that. That that turns out that I was born to do that role. Yeah, and it's really interesting that you say that because that's exactly how my, my start to my professional career was. I I did a lot of um, run and gun stuff first and was kind of roll with the punches. Then I moved to more technical side. I, I'm very much a technical shooter is how I consider myself is very much a technical shooter. I love the aspect of having to dial everything in precisely. I, I could run my, my cameras blindfolded and I could tell you what every single tiny little setting in the camera does because I think yep. it's very valuable to know those things. And so I, I'm very similar in that regard. And I'm also similar in the fact that um, when I first started my career, I was working for a TV show. And um, after working with that show full time for a while, I, I went and started my company and then went on contract with the show exactly like what you did. And I like that flexibility of being able to kind of do it your way without having someone standing over you. And I, I mean, it's just really interesting to me how, how similar we are in that regard. Yeah, I, I think um, in those days, it wasn't as common. You sort of breaking away from a network was it was a little frowned upon, like the network didn't tell you you can't do it, but 
they see it as, well, our costs are going to go up because instead of just hiring you internally, we're sort of giving you the whole budget for the show and you're doing it and hiring yeah. your people. And and that's how they thought about it, which economically, actually, I'm not even sure that's true because ultimately they're still paying all their internal people. And I'm not sure that that's so different. But as the now producer, I get to really control things the way I want. If I know I can shoot a scene with two shooters instead of three and I can save that budget and add a several days or a week in post, like that's how I'm, that's where I'm moving the money around. Or um, if I get to the end of a shoot and we, you know, we finished a day early and I, I can release my people a day early and I'm like, okay, well, they're not being paid for that last day. How do I make up for that? <laughs> I would usually schedule at the end of a shoot a company F off day, which is the official term for it. And I would say, well, all of you can go home tomorrow if you want. You're done. You're released. Go home. Or you can stay for one more day. I can't pay you for the day, but I'll pay for a lot of fun. <laughs> and whatever. Well, we're going to have a whole day of just screwing around. Um, and and almost everybody would take me up on that offer and stay for the extra day. Uh, I just felt it was right. You're taking care of your people. Yeah. They're doing good work for you. Um, we did a shoot in Austin, Texas, which I love. And we it was just basically interviews. So I'd rented this spectacular house. We shot inside the house. It had great light and a tree growing inside. And it was just beautiful. Uh, and a pool, which was nice. So we shot all around the house and that was great. And then I made the same offer. I'm like, if anybody wants to stay, there's a lot of fun in Austin. And <laughs> they said, we're staying. So I got us out on that um, that water jet thing that you stand on that shoots you up in the air, what, that, whatever they call that thing. We did that thing and we're spinning around Lake Austin and shooting up in the air. And um, we got out on the boat. <laughs> We went on the boat that day and we got tanned and just, you know, swam and that was great. And then later that day, I took everyone to Cavender's, to the boot shop, got everyone cowboy boots, <laughs> got everyone cowboy boots. And then that night we went to the Broken Spoke, which is this old school oh, yeah, I've kind been of there. country western, right? To the dance place. Yeah. Got a pitcher of beer for $3 <laughs> and sat down at the table and we got our boots on and we just danced the night away. Just had a good old- Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> country texas evening was awesome and you know i think i think back on that i i had very loyal people i'd used the same dp over and over the same editor over and over and i i think part of it was you know coming up being the shooter you're you're on a set you're sort of a lower on the totem pole and you're basically told what to do go here go there but once the shoot's done, no one really had your back. It was like, okay, you're done. Your plane's tomorrow. Figure out somewhere to eat tonight. You have a per diem. Go figure it out. See you later. I'll see you in New York. And that was kind of it. I'm like, okay, I mean, okay, great. But as you know, you run a camera for days or a week, your back hurts. Your shoulder hurts. You're achy. You haven't slept good. You're just worn, physically worn out. You're tired. All I could think was like, you know what I'd really want on my last day? Can, can they just throw me a massage? You know, something like just something to kind of just get the, you know, achies out and to just kind of recognize that I've been like breaking my back for all these days. Just that would just feel like such a uh, recognition of the hard work. Like you're paying me. OK, that's great. Just that little extra. And they never did the extra. So I thought when I'm in charge, I'm going to remember that lesson, which I did. And that led to the company F off day, which converted into if you can't stay for the F off day, I'll send a gift certificate to wherever your home city is for the massage, for the dinner for you and your wife, for something nice. So nice. that's me. I mean, you're getting your paycheck and everything. But this is me saying, like, I value you much more than just 
you do the work, you're paid, whatever. I value you and I want you to feel valued. Um, I also found that I'd get in a little trouble because I would take people's husbands away a lot and the wives didn't like that. So, and the wives would start to say, maybe you don't want to take that job because you've been traveling a lot, can do a week at home with the kids, like do, which I'm very, you know, sensitive to that, but I need, I need my guy. So instead of giving him the gifts, I'd send a case of wine and a gift certificate for a massage to his wife. (laughs) (laughs) That's a smart move. Then she didn't mind giving up her husband. She's like, oh, this is great. Go. I'll see you in a week. I don't need you. Uh, So (laughs) it was just about how to... What's that extra step? You know, you're 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 you you're hiring them, so you must like their work, and that's great. What's the extra step of like? I'm not. You're not just anybody. I want you specifically. I value you specifically. I want you to feel that. I want you to feel how much I value your contribution, um, and keep your wife happy, and just all the little things that just keeps your life easy, so you can continue to work with me, and we can continue to do this. Um, and that went a long way. So. I'm not above bribery to get my people to be happy. <laughs> no, I think it's huge. When I when I did TV, I will say that like I felt like like just another guy, just another spoke on the wheel, you know. And yeah. you do. I mean, it's a strenuous job. You're working very odd hours a lot of the time, sometimes very long hours. And you do. You get worn out. You get back. Yeah. I have a wife and kids, and it's hard on the whole family. You know, you're gone. Sometimes you don't have service depending on where you're at. You, you know, your kids are wondering where you're at. And I think it's just really important. Like if you take care of your guys, you take care of your people, they'll yep. take care of you. And I think that's yep. huge, man. I, I think it's huge. Um, I always had the birthdays written down. So if there was a birthday and someone's on one of my sets, there was always a moment. We'd stop. We'd do a thing. I, I'd have a gift or a you know, cake, whatever they're into. I never missed the birthdays. Um, if people had anniversaries and big things, I tried to schedule around it if I could so I didn't have to pull them off of that or get them home as soon as I could or I mean I was really sensitive to that um because I I realized the sacrifices that they're making to to help me out and 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 help this show out and everything um and I I just felt like that extra was was the right thing to do um and I, I think it was just driven by you know being that lower person on the totem pole and not getting that and feeling like I, I I'm glad you're hiring me. And that's awesome. I, I appreciate the work. Um, but boy, that little extra would go such a long way. Um, and so that was just that had, was always a focus. And to this day, I mean, that's that's a very important thing for me. I'll hire someone and I'm like, OK, oh, do you have a wife and kid? Oh, that's it. Oh, your kids. Oh, OK. When are their birthdays? So when's your birthday? I write it all down. So when I go to do a shoot, I'm like, hey, well, I need you this week. But I see your kid's birthday coming up. If I delay it by a day and you do it early, can I pull you the next day? Oh, no, no, man, it's all right. Uh, we'll celebrate it three days early and then we'll fly out. Thanks for thinking about it. Goes a long way. Goes a long way, man. So long tell way. us a little bit more about your time working at NTV. Like what were some of the challenges you ran into? What were some of the positives? Fill us, some, fill us in on some info. So MTV was, I did 12 years at MTV in the news and docs department. Um, part of that was, it started out just working on their different shows whatever show they needed someone for, they'd, they'd pull me in, or at that point as a company, they'd pull me in as a company. Um, and then I started, uh, you know, doing development. I love the development. Um, I did on um, spring break a couple of years, uh, which filmed in Mexico, which when you live in New York in February and your job flies you to Mexico for a week, it's just grand. It's just it's great. <laughs> I mean, it's freezing cold. It just sucks. And, you know, you, you end up, 
coming back to the office a week later with this beautiful tan, you know, a little hungover, <laughs> glitter on your face. You know, it's like, where have you been? Uh, I love that. But I love the development side. I love the kind of that blank piece of paper of we want to do a show about this, you know, whatever the topic might have been. Um, we want to reach this audience. What do you think? And I love the idea of like, wow, like we can just dream this thing up and then this network will fund it and we get to go out and make an actual thing. And that was just so incredibly satisfying. Um, I spent so I then I knew I was really in the right place and I spent years in that department doing development and then ultimately going out and making these shows. Um, uh, that really was, I think, the most rewarding because it's your creation in a way. Um, after a while, they put me on the True Life uh, series, which I loved. Um, I kind of was watching it for years and thought it was a cool show. The great thing about that show is it sort of was rooted in the old school concept of a documentary. Um, as the producer, I'm not allowed to tell anyone what to say or not say. Um, I can't pay for anything. I can't provide some incredible experience they couldn't do on their own and then pretend that they did it. I, I, like You have to really be hands off, like for real hands off. And I know different producers have different um, morals about those rules, but I really took it to heart. So um, I love the challenge of I'm not going to be a dirtbag reality producer being like, yeah, I won't tell them what to say. But if you just if you could break up tomorrow instead of today, I'll get my shot. Like that's bogus. <laughs> I, I really wanted to honor the concept of it's a documentary and it's real. Let's keep it real. Um, and I love that. And so I did that show for years. And that really was an incredible experience in terms of how to deal with all different kinds of people, but specifically how to sort of get the moment I want without saying this is the moment I want. And it's doable if you know what you're doing. Um, how to kind of just be around all the time so those moments just happen without saying I want the moment to happen, you know, kind of thing. Um, that was huge. But I love the challenge of it. I love the challenge of life just needs to unfold a certain way for this person over here. And hopefully it happens while my camera's rolling. Um, and that, that was the, that was the gig. So we, we did a show on, uh, uh, we did, a sh <laughs> we did a show about a, a, a woman in El Paso, Texas, who had a phobia of pigeons. Stop it. You ever heard of that? No, I didn't. It was a show about strange phobias. Okay. Which I had pitched. I pitched the idea. I'm like, you got to do a show. Cause I just thought it'd be funny. Um, we found this girl. She was great. I mean, interesting. Just, she was perfect for the, for the show. Perfect. And I'm like, okay, well, if she sees a pigeon, she loses, it. like loses it. Like if we can get that on camera, I can build a show around that. She has a great sister and friends and I have all the other pieces I need to make a show, but I have to have that moment. If I don't have a moment of her seeing a pigeon and freaking out, the show doesn't make any sense. And I don't have a trained pigeon. I don't have a way to like call in the, the pigeons when I need them. Cue the pigeon. To come in. Yeah, cue the pigeon. We don't have that, right? So that was the judgment call. I'm like, okay, the network's given me this budget for this show. I have a timeline. An hour of primetime network television is being held for me and for this show, which I do not intend to screw up. So what am I going to do? Um, and I, I say, screw it. It's going to be fine. <laughs> when you make documentaries, you kind of have to have the attitude of it'll be fine. Just go, just get into it, get your feet into it. 
things will happen. You can't pre-game this from your office in New York. It doesn't work. Just go to El Paso and it'll figure it out. So I did. So I hired the crew, sent everybody out, uh, and and there we were. Um, I rented this hacienda. <laughs> like it's like it's like this old school like like a Mexican looking hacienda on top of a mountain with land. <laughs> it was so cool. So we stayed there, and um, I just thought, you know what, it's going to work out. And so we just started following this girl. And the third day we're with her, she's pulling up to her job outside of, of, the, of a retail store where she worked. And we're out there and we're just getting a shot of the car pulling in, like the most basic establishing coverage type of shot. Car's pulling in, no big deal. And I'm just waiting for her to get out. <laughs> and lo and behold, out of nowhere, three pigeons come flying in out of nowhere oh, this is perfect. and land. One lands on the hood of her car, one lands on the roof, and one's on the ground right below her door where her door oh, that's was. And she, she's about to get out of the car. She slams the car door, jumps back in the car, and starts crying her eyes out. And I'm like, oh my God, we have a seat. And of course, she's mic'd. We have all the sound. It's all there. So the, the operator just, just stood up. The DP just moved around and pushed in through the window. And she wouldn't roll the window down. But if you do documentaries, you know that you keep a polarizer on your lens all the time for when you have to shoot through glass. It's like car windows. It's a really, really good idea. Those of you that don't do that, good idea. So you crank the polarizer. Boom, the window's clear. We shot right through the glass. And we're getting the seat. She calls her. Uh, boss inside. I can't come in. Why? There's pigeons. Shut the <laughs> hell up. Get inside. No, like for like there's I'm not coming in. There's pigeons. What? So <laughs> the boss walks out of the store and bangs on the window. Hey, you're, you're working. Get inside. I'm not coming in. There's pigeons. Are you mad? The boss fires her through the window. No, in he does car in the Oh, that's amazing. Lot. And this girl just drives away and goes home and she didn't have the job anymore. And that was it. But I had my moment. I had my moment. So I knew with that, I can build an entire show around that. We have a show. Uh, and I felt confident. So I was like, let's go for broke. Like completely go for broke. So she and her sister spend a day at the zoo. I'm like, zoos, people are throwing bread and stuff. I don't know. <laughs> I There's got to be some pigeons. <laughs> There's got to be pigeons, right? Like, I don't know. I live in New York. It's pigeons every five seconds. So we go to the zoo and we're just walking around. There's a tiger. There's a whatever. And it was, wasn't was much happening. And I'm like, uh, we might want to wrap this up. Um, it's, <laughs> we've got... We're doing a reverse tracking shot and we're walking back and it's this beautiful two shot of the two of them and they're having a conversation about this thing and it's all happening and out of the sky, as if I planned it, a damn bird, a pigeon, comes flying down, almost lands on her head, cruises right by her and lands on the ground in front of her and she freaks and her sister freaks and they go running in the other direction so we chase them down through the zoo. And she gets by like the, the bird cage or someplace where she could hide and she goes in and hides and she's crying her eyes out and her sister's talking about it. And her sister's like, come on, it's just a bird, make a connection. <laughs> she's kind of messing with her a little bit, it was great. But it was like, it was my second moment. I thought with two, with two of those moments, absolutely I can build a show around them. And we did. And the show ended up really rating really well. Actually the show was, was excellent. Um, but it was one of those moments of like, I'm spending $10,000 a day to have my crew on the ground in El Paso, Texas. Those are dollars I don't get back if a pigeon doesn't land in our shot, period. 
and I can't control this bird. I can't control any of it, but I can just go there with the hope of like, let's just get into it and see what happens. And this is, this week's going to cost me 50 grand. I don't want to come home empty handed for 50 grand. Um, but I'm just going to take a shot. And it, it ended up working out like amazing. I think in this business, there's a balance between being a responsible business person. You have to be careful. You, you can't go back to MTV. I need another 50 grand. Why? Hey, no birds. They'd say, why don't you show up to the shoot with bread? You know what I mean? Like, I don't have an excuse for that. Why don't you hire, you know, whatever. You could have been throwing sourdough around the, the shoot. You did it. So I can't go do that. I've promised them they're going to get a great show. I promised them this girl's going to pay off and be a great casting. Like I've made all these promises. Now I really have to deliver. And there's a bit of pressure there for sure. Um, but if you don't take chances in this business, in documentary especially, you don't get those big moments. You can't plan that moment and you can't guarantee that moment. You just have to show up and let the moment happen. And then it is gold. And so that one really worked out, worked out really, really great. But that, that is how it is doing that kind of work is you, you just show up and you hope for the best. And for the most part, it does work out. Yeah. Sometimes it does. And I, I will say like, I remember I was in, I was in, um, it was when I was in Pakistan, actually, we got the choice of going with two, two village groups and we were trying to get some, some animals on camera and the group I chose not to go with was the group that saw a snow leopard chase down one of the animals and kill it. And you're like, oh, if I would have been there to get that shot, it's like one of the hardest animals in the world to get on camera. If yep. I would have been there to get that shot, like career's made, you know what I mean? Yep. So, so, yep. But you're right though. Like, but if you don't take the chances and go out, you would never get it no matter what. And that's right. I, and I get it. I get like the risk involved, but you're right. Like you just, you have to put yourself out there. You have to try it. And, 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 and sometimes, <laughs> sometimes the pigeons will come out of nowhere. <laughs> It's what it is. Um, we did another story in Utah. Um, I met it. I met this kid, RJ, um, who was a kid. He was 18. Um, he came in through a casting. Uh, I was doing a show on fetishes and he came in through the thing and he says, I'm 18, I'm gay and I'm in Utah right there. I'm like, whoa, okay. Story. Uh, and <laughs> story. his, and well, his dad wasn't approving of his lifestyle. I mean, there was a sure. lot there. I'm like, okay, this is, this could be good. Um, and he says, my fetish is I like to lick the bottom of men's sneakers. What? He says, you know, <laughs> uh, I'll, if I see a guy who I think is cute and I talk to him and I like him, my thing is I like to take off his shoe and lick the sole, the bottom of his sneaker. That was about the strangest thing I'd ever heard, but it wasn't a put on. It was real for him. I'm like, OK, like that's really different and interesting. But at being 18, the network was like, he's so young and this is kind of controversial and it's crossing yeah. a lot of boundaries and he might just be too young and we're not comfortable. Okay. So I ended up doing, doing something else, but I stayed in touch with him for six years. Six years. He'd call me every six months. Hey man, how you doing? Hey, what do you think? Hey, you still doing your thing? Yeah. What are you still doing your thing? Yeah. He's like, you what do you think? You got me? You know, can you put me on it? Well, I need to do another kind of fetish show. And we just did one. And uh, I kept in touch with this guy for six years. And finally, at, at year five and a half, I went back to MTV and I'm like, we should do a, the first fetish show I did rated all the way off the charts. Probably because we premiered right behind Jersey Shore. That probably helped. But nonetheless, we got the number and they were thrilled. I said, let's do another fetish show. And they're like, okay, what do you got this time? I'm like, I got a guy 
who licks sneakers. And he's gay and in Utah. It's kind of like all these pieces. And they're like, that's interesting. I'm like, it sure is. He's still around. I called him up. He goes, dude, I'll do the show tomorrow. <laughs> I'm like, great. So I flew my crew out to Utah to meet this kid. I knew it was interesting enough what he was doing that I could get a show. But it was the kind of show where what you really want is a love story. That's what you want. You want him to meet the guy of his dreams with the sneakers of his dreams. And like, that's what you want. Right? <laughs> that's what it is. But that's, that's, what, that's the show you want. That's the show that will really work is the love story show. And he had these, you know, uh, um, um, these cross-dressing friends and these, you know, drag queen friends. These very outrageous friends who were lots of fun and very colorful and a, a really fun world. Tension with his dad at home. There were some nice pieces I could build a show around and I knew I could get it. But what I wanted was the love story. And I can't make a love story. I can't make the guy of his dreams show up out of the blue. I just got to hope that maybe that happens. So there we are in, in Utah, $10,000 a day, the usual story. And we're following him and he's out walking around and we spent a whole day in like an outdoor mall. He didn't see any guys he liked. Done. I'm like, damn, that's one day. And we're on the, we're, we're on the ground for seven days. So that's, that's all I got, seven days. So day one, done, nothing, shit, okay. So day two, we go to another part of town, done, nothing. Ah, fuck, okay, what are we gonna do? The third night he was hosting uh, at the local club, the local gay club, the nightclub, he hosts the show. Hey, this is my friend so-and-so and he brings the drag queens on stage and it's lots of fun. And I'm like, well, let's just go film it, why not? So there he is up on stage, packed room, camera, we're sort of stage left, we're on the stage, we're shooting him. And he's like, all right, tonight we've got this. And my friend, uh, his friend Midori, who I love, is drag queen, just awesome, just great people, so much fun. And so they're dancing and the crowd's having fun. It was great. And he's up on stage, he's introducing the next act and he goes, and next we have, wait a minute, who are you? And he points. I'm like, what the hell? I'm on the mic, I'm on the radio, the camera guy. I'm like, pan to the crowd, let's see who he's got. What do you, you know, camera guy pans. I've got the monitor, I'm watching the monitor. And there's this tall drink of water standing in the crowd. And he's like, you, come on stage. So he pulls this guy up from the crowd, guy comes up on stage and, you know, great, handsome looking guy and, you know, the whole thing. And he's into it. He's loving it. And he looks down and he sees that this guy is wearing his favorite brand of sneakers. And so he's, <laughs> he's saying, where did you come from? And ooh, baby. And he clearly is feeling it, which was great. I'm like, this is what I've been wanting. But he says to the guy, are those, I forget the model, Air Jordan, whatever the model was. Oh, and those are the such and such edition? Yeah. He goes, ooh, those are nice. I'm like, no way. Oh my he's, God. In a, he's in front of 2,000 people. He's on stage. All of this aired, by the way. This is all in the show that aired that you can see. And so he says to the guy, ooh, baby, take off your shoe. Guy's like, uh, what? Okay, whatever. <laughs> guy takes off, hands on the shoe. The shoe that had just been walking all over the floor of a nightclub. Yeah, okay, that shoe. Hands in the shoe in front of the crowd. <laughs> I'm on the I'm on the walkie, I'm like, pull, push in, push in, you know? We push right in. He's standing there on the stage, blue light, backlit. I'm just beautiful. And he takes the shoe and uh, <laughs> runs right down the sole of that shoe. <laughs> and he loved it. And the crowd went crazy. I'm like, oh my God. The rest of my crew is down in the pit below the stage and they're looking at me like, I can't believe we're getting this. I'm like, I know. Uh, and I'm watching the monitor. I'm like, is this real? 
I'm looking at the little red light on top of the monitor. Please tell me you're rolling, you know, watching the time code actually spin to make sure we're really rolling. Like, are we getting this? It's the dream scenario. So they, he takes the guy off stage. They go downstairs to kind of the green room area where there's, they're in private. And he's just, oh my God, where'd you come from? And let's exchange numbers and whatever. And great. And he's just, he's elated. This, you know, this is the guy of his dreams, right? He's elated. I'm like, this is incredible. That then became the story. The day after that, they had a date. So of course we went on the date with them and then they had another date. We went on that date with them and they really liked each other and a lot of conversation about sneakers and sneakering and the whole thing. And it just worked. Um, and it was the, it was the dream, but it was another one of those, like, there was no way to plan that. Like a guy who he found attractive, who had the right shoes, who's there that night, who he saw in the crowd, like the odds are not good of that happening. And that's exactly what happened. And that, that made the show. And that was one of the, it was one of the highest rated shows of all of True Life, which was on for, I don't know, 19 seasons or something. And uh, a couple of years ago, MTV did a retrospective of like the most outrageous moments of, of all time of True Life, right? Of the whole show. And there was only 10. Two of the 10 were from my shows. Oh, that's that awesome, one, man. That one and another one. Oh, that was man. crazy. That is crazy. So do you ever have people come to you and say like, there's no way that's real, that's staged? Yes. Yeah, actually, one of the things I love to do is when a show airs, I'm always on, I don't know, Twitter, Facebook, whatever, somewhere where I'm watching live chat, I'm watching people. And that's what you see all the time. Oh, BS, MTV says this is a documentary. There's no way this girl's afraid of pigeons. There's no way this guy licked a shoe. There's no way that's real. And I would never chime in because I don't know why, but I'm sitting there like you guys, like, no, it's the, the thing that's crazy is that it's real. You could write that in a script, I guess. And they would be weird and funny and okay, that's cool. But it's totally real. That's what makes it so amazing. That's why it works. And and I was sort of shouting through the TV like, no, it's real. I swear it's actually real. <laughs> um, but I think if you do something for real, that's so, um, I was going to say outrageous. That's just so different, but well done. If someone thinks it's fake, it kind of means you nailed it. It means yeah. that the story is just is so perfect. It can't, nothing can be that perfect in reality. It must be fake. No, that's actually what it was. And it kind of told me that we really hit on a, a chord there culturally. And that was, that was kind of exciting. It was the, it was the second time on this show that we did that, where we really kind of hit that cultural chord hard. Um, it's very satisfying when that happens. Man, I can imagine. I want, I want to ask you, so you, you made a comment that you were, you were spending about 10,000 a day. So yeah. can you tell us like how many crew members you had, who all you brought out, what their yeah. roles were, et cetera? Yeah. So not every show is the same cost, obviously. Um, when I started doing the show, I did it solo. The whole show solo. Your I own had lighting, your own sound, your own everything? Everything. Everything. So um, when you see the early shows that I did as a company, I did them solo. Um, I, I had the team around me, but I would lead. Uh, I would run the camera and I would have support people. I would run... You know, I would do production, the producing, but I would have people behind me. And I just kind of backed away. Like, I have these great people. Let me let them do more on set. 
get out of the office, get out, you know, on, on, on the, on the set more. So my cost didn't change dramatically as some plane tickets and things, but it felt like having them on the set there, seeing the show had a lot of value. Um, so sure. I started bringing everybody with me. It was, I brought two, I brought three, I brought five. Um, so yeah, you'd have all the, all your salaries, depending on who you're dealing with. Um, you know, all your salaries together is probably two thirds of that number ish. Um, then you add a whole bunch of hotel rooms, a bunch of rental cars and walkie rentals and all that stuff, food per diems and all that. And it absolutely adds up. But I felt like there was value in having everyone there because then when we go back to New York, everyone was lived it. All the releases are done and in the right folders and in the right place. And when you can't find the release, the AP that does the releasing was there that night. Oh, I remember that night the lady spilled a drink on it. So I had her do another one and I put that in my backpack and here's my backpack. Versus, which I'm sure you've been through because everyone's been through it. You get back to the office. You're in the edit. We love this scene. Uh, is that person released? Oh, they're not released? Okay. Can you recut that whole scene and cut them out because they're not released? Which I've done. <laughs> That's infuriating. Uh, that's really infuriating. So all the details had to be tight and all my receipts and accounting and all that stuff had to be tight. Um, so I just found a lot of value in having everyone there. And that ultimately made the show go, go better and go faster. So we had, we, I had more expense per day, but I could do it in fewer days. And that ultimately netted out to be the same price, but got us a better show. So when you had, you're talking about the releases, when you had releases, like say you're in that nightclub. Did you have to get releases for everybody there? Or did you have them sign something when they came in? Like, how yeah. did that work? Yeah, if, if you're going to do this, you need to know the legal restrictions around recording and releases and all that. You have to know what you're doing there because you don't want to get in trouble. Um, if you're in a nightclub, generally speaking, you can put a big giant sign on the front door. If you enter this premises, you are consenting to being recorded kind of thing. That's good mm -hmm. for all your background people and just people walking through and that's fine. Anyone who's featured on camera and anyone who speaks on camera, you need a release from them individually. And so I would have an AP who that's their whole job because things happen very fast. And your character talks to somebody, the bartender, whoever, and they have a great, and then the camera moves away and the AP comes running in. Oh, hi, would you mind signing this? And, you know, rarely would there be any pushback on that. They know you're filming, they know what it is and it's not a surprise. And so people sign. Um, every now and again, you get a little drama someone who maybe did something embarrassing and didn't want it to be seen on camera, but you still get them. You have to have them because I'm not cutting out my scene. You will notice if you watch any of the, with the True Life shows, I did eight of them for MTV. If you watch any of those shows, there are zero blurred people in any of the shots. Everything was cleared. Um, doesn't mean we weren't sued a couple times. <laughs> <laughs> which we were, uh, doesn't mean that there isn't problem. Doesn't mean you don't get someone calling you up. I know I did that last night and I, you're filming in a club. Someone's drunk and they're acting outrageous. And then they call you the next day. Hey, listen, I know I signed the thing, but I'm kind of embarrassed about my behavior. And do you have to use that? Uh, that's a, that's a judgment call. Like, well, it kind of made the whole scene. I sort of need it. But then you, you can say to someone, you actually weren't that embarrassing. It was actually a really funny moment. Here's how I'm going to use it. I'm not using the part where you fell down the stairs. We're not. I'm only going to use the part where you talk to so-and-so and that there's nothing there that's crazy and you kind of reassure somebody and then it's fine. We're not there to gotcha anybody. I'm not there to, oh, well, you signed, screw you. Like I'm not, that's not how we do this. Um, everything is absolutely must be by permission and that's the only way I roll. 
Um, the only time we had trouble is we were filming in a strip club in Atlanta. And the girl we were filming was a hostess and we're filming in a strip club. That's a little tough because there's probably a lot of people in a strip club that don't really want to be on TV for obvious reasons, right? So we, I consulted with MTV Legal before that shoot. Like, how do I treat this? How do you, what do you want me to do? Um, and they're like, put the big sign up out front, do your best to not see like a lot of background faces and absolutely anybody who's identifiable must be released. Okay, got it. So that was my, my word to the team. Everyone's got to be released. Um, I got to the shoot. I got to the strip club. Uh, they brought me back to the dressing room where all the girls were for some reason, I guess, to get their releases, which I didn't mind at all, as you might imagine. Uh, it's a room full of strippers. Like, when am I going to be in that room again? Uh, <laughs> I couldn't wait to get that selfie. Oh, boy. I had them all behind me and I started taking the selfie. I couldn't send that fast enough to my friends. <laughs> guess what I'm being paid to do right now? That's hilarious. See you later. You know, it's just insane. So we shot, we had a great <clears throat> night that night. We got the scene that we needed and the show airs and we get a call from someone's attorney. It was one of the servers in the, um, in the, in the bar, in the, in the club who like the camera was panning and she was just like a blur as the camera pan. You had to pause it to even see a person and you had to squint to see who it was. We didn't think that would be a problem. You couldn't even tell who this person was, but apparently she felt like her reputation was irreparably damaged and she wanted money. And <sighs> so that became a, a problem for lawyers and they figured that out. Um, so you do get that, but, um, if for the most part, it's all by permission. We're not there to like be sneaky or sneak up on anybody. Um, and it's important to me, especially with these kinds of stories, which are kind of outrageous, that people don't feel like I'm exploiting them. Like, oh, that's weird. Let me throw you on TV. It's not like that. You've come to me because you want to tell your story. I want to tell your story faithfully. I'm not here to make you uncomfortable or put you in a bad position. So what what of your story is it okay for me to tell? Like, what do you want me to not say? Like, let's talk about that before we start. So I'm not embarrassing you or putting you in a bad you know spot. That was very important. Um, and it was always the priority to make sure we're going to do some wacky stuff for sure. But you've said yes, and we've talked about it, and you're comfortable, I'm comfortable, and that's how we do it. So for people listening who are interested in, in this particular question, and I'd love to get your take on it, but what my attorney has kind of always told me when it comes to things like releases is that one signage outside of like a buildings like what you did for, for the club, like that's yep. always a, a must ba for background people. Anybody that's featured has to have a direct release is kind of what he's always told me to do. And then also that there are some public spaces where if you're not featuring anyone, but they're in the background, say a college campus, some things like that are fair game. Is that kind of how the, how you treated it? For sure. And and that's definitely right. And it's especially true in the documentary world. If you're doing something that's truly a documentary, you have a different type of license than you have in a fictional kind of piece. Something fictional, you've set it up. So presumably you have total control over everything that's happening and you need to answer for that. In a doc, it's it, you don't. Why do we not have to get releases for news on TV? Because it's not practical and it's not really necessary. Um, not for that purpose. This is sort of falls along similar lines. So you do get a lot of leeway when it comes to a documentary. Um, I just want to be careful in terms of making sure people are well informed. 
I don't want sure. someone to be like surprised. Oh, you got me on camera. Like, look, we've got a big giant camera running around. We're pretty obvious. If you don't want to be on camera, you can walk away or you can tell me you don't want to walk, be on camera. I can yeah, look in another direction. That. I'm, re I'm yeah. very respectful of that. Um, we did a shoot with um, the U.S. Border Patrol and we're out on the right on the border and they're chasing drug dealers and all that kind of thing. And most of the agents said no problem. And there were a few that were like, I specifically don't want to be on this thing. We absolutely honored that completely. I had Which no I problem get. with that. Which I totally get, right? The least guys are working undercover, whatever, obviously. So yeah. um, I'm not there to blow up your spot. It's not why I'm there. But I do think for someone getting into this or someone who's doing this, don't take the legal side uh, lightly. You don't want to be sued. Um, you don't want to be sued. And, and e e even beyond that, you don't want your client, the network, the sponsor, whoever it is, to feel like you're irresponsible. What do you mean you didn't get a release? How could you not get a, you were standing there with this guy for three hours. How did you not get a release? It, it feels sloppy. Well, what else didn't you get? Well, what else didn't you do? I, you know, did you release the music? I mean, are you, whatever, these images, these other things, like, are you being sloppy with your business practices? If you're putting music that's not cleared in a show, uh, artwork, stills, anything that's not cleared, you're, you're not releasing people. If you're not taking the legal side of it seriously, that client is, is now exposed to, to an action from these people. And you're not, it's not going to go to you. It's going to go to them because they have the big pockets and that's who's going to get sued. Um, you don't want your client to be put in a bad spot. They damn sure won't hire you again. And it's embarrassing and it's easy to avoid. Um, if you don't know how to do it, have an AP or whoever you have assigned on set who knows exactly what they're doing. It's got to be someone who's a little firm, who can push back if someone says no, or who can talk to someone who maybe doesn't want to be talked to. You know, they polite, a polite pain in the ass is what we usually say. Um, you're maybe won't get every single release, but for the most part, we do. Um, it's the oversights that I can't stand. Um, I did a show that I didn't shoot, but it was brought to me for, for post and my, my team did the post. We cut this whole show. It was a scene on a boat, a fishing scene, three people or four people on a boat and the whole thing. We cut the whole scene. It was great. They loved it. And it's in like the final stages of the show where people are going through and making sure all the clearances are there and the titles are right and the chirons are spelled correctly. We're into like the end. And whoever did the clearance matrix reaches out and was like, that guy on the boat wasn't cleared. One of the one of the boat guides, one of the main people who had a whole bunch of lines that we used. He was very much in the scene. You're on a boat. Every shot has almost everybody in it. Like, how do you cut sure. someone out of it's so small? So and if we knew in advance he didn't want to be on, we could have shot around it. But that's not how it was done. It was done as great. Everyone's there. So I cut the whole scene and they're like, there's no release for this guy. You have to cut him out. I'm like, he's He's in every shot. <laughs> like, what? Uh, and he even had a couple of like key lines that we really needed. And it was just a mess. So we went back in the edit. It turns out another character said the exact same line he said. So we could get it that way. We zoomed in on some shots. We did some framing and trickery. And we did manage to cut this guy out. But that shouldn't happen. Whoever with the crew, I wasn't there that day. The crew that was with that guy on that boat was with him for hours and hours. How do you not have time to get a release? And how did you not start to shoot by saying, are you cool with being on camera? Because if not, get off the boat because we're not, we, we can't shoot. Or, or just stand behind the guy with the camera. You won't be on. No problem. That's fine. No problem. Like there's a lot of ways to get around that. Um, 
But how do you get through a whole shoot and deliver it to your post and then get through post and only at the end then realize you don't have a, a release? Who's who's in charge? <laughs> who's doing this? Right? That kind of pissed me off a little bit. Um, you don't want your client ever seeing that because it's just sloppy and it's just crazy. So do the right thing when you're when you're on the set or beforehand. Make sure all your legal is nice and tight. Your your location agreements are nice and tight. Your your um, guest releases are nice and tight. Whatever else has to happen. If there's music playing in the background that you can't license, make sure that stuff is off. If there's a TV screen on with some Seinfeld reunion or something going on that you know you can't use, make sure you're not seeing it or it's turned off or you're cutting around it. If there's signs in a, in a bar for alcohol brands and you know your network won't allow alcohol brands to be on the screen, you don't want a whole screen of just all blur with your person standing in the middle. It looks ridiculous. <laughs> Yeah. So find a different place in there to shoot or shoot in a different bar. It doesn't take a lot of pre-thought to, to identify these issues, but you do need to know them before you go in because by the time you're there, it might be too late. So don't, yeah, don't take that side of it lightly. Especially by the time you get to post, it's way too late at that point. Wait, way too late. And, you know, the problem is in post, you only have so many options. So on the yeah. boat scene, we, we were able to cut this guy out. That was great. But if you're in a, a bar scene, which I've done, and your your network says we can't have all these alcohol brands, like we you have to blur it, or you have to, it, the shot is just a mush. It's just a big blurry mush with your person. It looks stupid. Like why wasn't that communicated in advance? Did why did the producer not say we're we're going to be shooting in a bar? Is there any problem with that? We're going to shoot in a strip club. Is there any problem with that? That should be a discussion with your legal team before you go in, so you know what the rules are. Different places. We shot an, a, an NFL game. We were shooting pregame on the field at at um, at, at a on the NFL stadium on the field. Yeah, we were actually in Gillette Stadium, as a matter of fact. And um, there was a lot of rules, a lot of rules. You guys can do your thing right here. You can't shoot that way. That sponsor's name can't be in your shot. These players can't be on camera. Uh, CBS this morning is doing whatever they're doing over there. You can't have a lot of rule. Okay, fine. I made a list and we were very, your wireless uh, mics can only operate on these channels, not these channels. Like lots of rules. No problem. We talked about it in advance. We knew what they needed. We knew how to do our thing and it was no problem. But you have to have those conversations in advance. You don't want to be on the field at an NFL game where you're being watched like a hawk and you start doing something you're not supposed to do, and now your 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 shoot will be shut down, and you'll be booted. Not okay. Give me five minutes to finish. No, you cross the line, you're out. Because we're the NFL, and you're not, and take a hike. I mean, that's really what it is. Uh, and so you 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 need to make sure when you go in as part of your prep and your pre pro, you've rented all the right cameras and you've done all those things, and that's great. But have you thought about the details? Have you thought about all the small things that make a shoot go nice and smooth that give you that shoot day that you, you want to have over and over again and not the regretty one where you have to go and spend three months apologizing and fixing things and calling lawyers and blurring in post and being crazy. It's just not worth it. Get it right on set. It's much easier. Yeah, you wouldn't want your wireless mics interfering with <laughs> like the NFL's mics or CBS mics or something like that. I mean, that would just be something so small as that could be catastrophic. It's actually an FCC violation to operate yes. your wireless mics on the wrong frequency. Um, when you shoot in airports, I've shot in a lot of airports. Airports are very, very picky about your frequencies. When you shoot uh, on, on Broadway, if you go into any of the, the houses to, uh, to film a Broadway show, 
They're running wireless all over the place. They're very picky. They'll stop you on the way in. And what frequency is this on? What frequency is your IFB on? What frequency is your walkie on? That doesn't work. Go to block 26, go to whatever. They have a strong opinion about that. Um, most of these places do. So know that going in, that, that the environment you're in may dictate a way of working that you better be able to work. If you show up and all you have is wireless on block 29, which no one uses anymore, but for a time that was a thing, and you show up somewhere and they test your mic and they find out you're on the wrong block, you're not operating wireless that day. That's your mics, that's your IFB, that's whatever. That would be a huge problem to show up somewhere and not have another mic on another block that you can switch to. So do you have that kind of versatility? Have you called them in advance? Have you talked about this? Have you thought about it? Really, really important. If you Do you know what the tentacle sync trackies are? I don't think I'm familiar with that. Yeah, it's this little tiny 32-bit float device that runs time code, but you can mm. run 32-bit float audio recording into it directly. Ah, uh, yes, 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 yes. And I've, I haven't used I've those been using all oh my. I've got a ton of them just to avoid stuff like that, where I can go in, mic people up, I can monitor the audio on the device to make sure there's no like clothes rustling noise and stuff. But if I find myself in a real tricky situation like that. I'll just take wireless out of the equation and send them off with that and sync via time code later. And I've had that bail me out of a few jams where we might mm. be in a facility where we don't have the capability or we know going in, we don't have the capability of being able to avoid the wireless channels that we're not supposed to be on. It's kind of been a, a great lifesaver. Technology, yeah. I guess, was what I'm saying is, is, is starting to evolve to a point where it's helping people like me to be able to adapt to things like that. No doubt about it. I mean, you, you need to be able to adapt... Um, you, you need to be able to sort of do whatever you need to do to make it work, but you're, you're going to go into a shoot with your plan A, but yeah. it's, if you might be in the room two minutes and plan A is dead in the water, you better have a B. And if <laughs> B's not quite right, you, be, I mean, you better have down to probably D or E. Totally agree. You better have mics on different blocks. A shoddy should always be running no matter what in case something happens. Uh, in, in your example, to have some sort of other recorder you can use if wireless goes down or if wireless isn't available. What about if you're shooting car to car? Sometimes you have to shoot car to car or your 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 A cam is in the follow car because you want a shot of the car and that's what you're doing. But all of a sudden there's great conversation in the car, but you're on the highway and the wireless sounds like shit. Do you have some local device recording in the car all the time so you can capture that if some great conversation happens? Like, have you thought about that? It's, it's a lot of little things, but you start getting used to like, what's my main plan? And then what's the backup behind that? And then what's the fail safe behind that? And do I have all those in place in case I need it? I will tell you, I can't recall how many times I've done a whole day shoot or a whole week shoot on plan C. Different equipment, different everything. This didn't work. This didn't work. This didn't work. And all of a sudden, you know, you're and your backup, backup mics with your backup, backup, whatever. Thank God I had it. But I, it, years of experience told me to always have options. You don't want to get somewhere and get stuck. That's the worst. Because then you, what are you going to do? Not shoot? And what are you going to do? Yeah, I totally agree. I was on a shoot on a college campus recently, and I had everything cleared with my wireless mics. But one thing that was interesting is I, I didn't, I, I guess I didn't realize that motion detector lights can affect your wireless audio. I'd never had that happen yeah. to me before. And I just remember I was on, this is last year, I was on the campus and like all my wireless was down. There's like no way I could use it for the day because there was motion sensor lights or what they call occupancy sensors in every single flipping room on that campus. And had I not had like a, a B or a C plan, I mean, I would have been totally up a creek. 
And so, yeah, you, you absolutely have to have like multiple, multiple layers of plans of how you're going to get through something. I totally agree. You have to. Um, you should have more battery than you think you need, more media than you think you need, um, wireless in more ways than you think you need on different channels in different ways. I mean, you, you should have a, a real variety because uh, you don't know what's going to come into play. You don't know what you're going to need. What if your shoot day goes longer than you think and you brought three bricks, but you really need four? Now what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. Where are you going to find an already charged gold mount Anton Bauer 160 battery in the middle of the of the you know uh, of a mall yeah. <laughs> at seven o'clock on a Saturday night? You're not. So if you didn't bring it, you're screwed, and no one's going to save you. <laughs> so you better have backups yeah. to your backups. You have to, um, and it's always being kind of ready for that unknown. The unknown is what will always surprise you and get you. The unknown can also always can also be excellent. It's those moments when we are doing this, when we're putting a show together, where we think we're just about to lose the whole show, right on the other side of that is usually some of the best stuff, right? Um, I was doing a show in Maryland of this kid who had a foot fetish, another fetish show. There you go. I don't know why I keep talking about fetish shows, but they're the most fun. This guy had a foot fetish. He was a hard rocker, like a death metal, on stage chain wallet type of dude, a hard rocker. And his hard rock name was Dr. Evil, but because he was into sniffing shoes and he liked feet, they called him Dr. Schultz. <laughs> so that was like his unofficial <laughs> stage name. So we go out Dr. to film Schultz. this guy and he's, t- he's on, uh, on Zoom chat uh, with a girl that he met who he'd never met in person. And she's putting the very first scene of the show, if you happen to see it, her feet are up on, on the webcam and he's on his computer like, oh, nice. Yeah, sexy. And he arranges to meet her for the first time. She's going to fly in and she's going to meet him. And he's super excited. So he's like, she's going to fly in. When? Tomorrow. I'm like, what? You didn't tell me. Oh, yeah, man, it's no problem. I'll go pick her up. And I don't need to explain to him, but I'm thinking I have to now I have 24 hours. I have to clear an airport. I have to find my way in there. I have to go through the whole wireless song and dance with the airport people. Like I have a million things to do if we're going to an airport tomorrow. He's thinking, oh, I'm just going to go pick her up from the airport. He's not thinking like what I might need like to make a show, which why would he think that? So I call the airport. Hey, this is Josh. I'm calling from MTV and what's going on? Uh, Listen, I'm working on the show for this guy. He's picking up his girlfriend tomorrow. Uh, She's flying in on such and such flight and um, I'd like to show up with the camera. So that has to go through nine people, as you can imagine. Okay, I'll talk Mm -hmm. to so-and-so. So So through that whole day, I'm getting calls from the airport. Oh, it cleared so-and-so. It's going to so-and-so. It cleared operations. It's going to general. Cleared general. It's going to legal. It cleared legal. It's going and it's moving quickly. Okay, thank God we're going to have our moment. But it hadn't gotten the final sign off from the airport director. Without that, we're we're not shooting. Okay. So it gets to the following day and I'm at this guy's house <laughs> and I'm filming him putting his shoes on, getting ready to go pick this girl up. And he's excited and I can't wait to meet her. It's a great setup. It's a great moment. He's They're going to meet for the first time, but he's leaving in an hour and I still don't have my signature on for the, for the property release for the airport. I can't shoot. And I'm like, oh God. And we've got a, you know, a giant berry cam. It's not like we can hide. We wouldn't try to hide anyway, because we need it to be, you know, official. Um, but I'm like, this is not working out. So I walk out of his house and I'm outside on his lawn and I'm calling the airport. I'm like pacing back and forth. He's inside getting his keys. <laughs> he is ready to go. And he's not waiting for me because he's going to meet this girl and he's his day's planned. He didn't care about me or my show. He cares about meeting a girl, right? You can't right. blame him. So I'm on the phone to the airport. 
so and so and he goes yeah uh, and the guy's like listen you've gotten all the signatures but one we need the airport director and he hasn't wait a minute hold on a sec he puts the phone down silence I'm like okay he comes back hey the airport director just walked by in the office i gave him the paper he signed it you're cleared i'll see you in an hour click <laughs> just like that as no sooner did he say that i look up on the balcony from the apartment the guy's walking out with his keys getting in his car we're good to go last gosh, minute man. we're good to go oh my god we're good to go so we get in the car <laughs> and he's like i'm so excited and i'm just i'm so relieved i don't know what to do with myself and we just go running out of the house we go we're in the car we're shooting we get to the airport we're on the skyway and the thing and we're on our way in the air we meet the airport uh you know representative meets us and great okay let's go and it's all good and we're going through the airport and we get to like the last part where you can go without a ticket where the people come from. This is where he's going to meet her. And so I'm, he's excited. I'm like, this is my moment, right? This is going to be, it's going to make my whole show. But I got to pee. And I'm running camera, by the way. I'm running camera this day. Just because of the airport thing, they only wanted one person. So I said, screw it, I'll shoot it. So I'm running the camera, big, big old very cam. I got to pee real bad. And so I'm like, okay, let me just get the moment. I'm not going to miss this moment for anything. Like sure. he's standing there waiting. Like it's any minute she's going to walk through the door. I'm like, I can't hold it anymore. <laughs> I just, nature is calling. So I, the camera's on my shoulder. I run around the corner. The bathroom's right there. I'm like, come on, come on, come on. Because the camera's on, I still hear the wireless. And on the wireless, I hear, oh my God, I think I see her. I'm like, oh my God. So I, with one hand, I'm, the camera's on my shoulder rolling actually it's just just to keep the audio just to hear what's going on sure. so the camera's on my shoulder i'm zipping i'm like tucking i'm like oh my god let me put myself zipping together i run out of the bathroom i run around the corner it he was 50 feet away i run right around the corner push the red button camera's rolling i'm running down the corner i get the camera off my shoulder down in front of me i snap the zoom i crank the thing into focus and right as i have him framed rolling and in the shot she comes running out she jumps up leaps into his arms gives him the biggest hug ever they have this incredible re you know meeting moment and it makes the whole show and they spend the day together and it's a moment and it's it's just fantastic but I almost missed that moment because <laughs> I couldn't wait another 30 seconds. You had to pee. <laughs> I had to, I mean, look, it's the reality. I mean, it is what it is. But I yeah. would, because I was alone that day, there was no one to hand the camera to. There just was no way to, other way to do True. that. <laughs> and I, I'm running out. I'm like, oh God, please. This, we came here for this. I can't recreate it. Like I need my moment. And just, it couldn't have been cut any finer. And when you watch the raw footage, you see like the bathroom and the ceiling and then the bunch of blurry and it looks crappy. And right when it becomes a shot, boom, she runs. Oh, my God. That is hilarious. Couldn't have been any. It was perfect. Um, but I, you know, it's something as little as that. You got to pee. Okay, that's real. Or whatever you got to do. Food, by the way, is never an excuse. We don't miss anything for food. If you if if a moment's coming, you're not eating. Sorry, get a granola bar. But if you got to go, you got to do whatever you got. You got to do it. Um, it's just sometimes those moments happen when it's sort of inconvenient for the crew to happen tough luck you got to do what you got to do and that one worked out but whoo <laughs> that was close but we got it you know you're so when you're talking about moments like that it makes me ponder this question are you guys running when you were doing that were you running wireless like most of the time or were you trying to swing with booms as much as you could as well to capture like she's obviously not mic'd up when she's 
coming off the plane or are you trying to pull that audio off of his lav like how how are you how are you rolling with that yeah so so okay so two things i'm glad you brought that up because it actually matters how you do it there's always a boom on the camera running always 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 and it's we have the boom set up uh, for sound rejection behind and on both sides. It's looking in one direction. You know, it's a uni- unidirectional. Most, a lot of mics, you can change the setting, keep it looking forward so it's rejecting everything else. It's really clear. These mics are excellent. These um, Sennheiser mics are excellent. Um, you run so like 416s or? Yeah, something like that. So we have, yeah, we have that gotcha. running all the time, always on top of the camera. So if your lab goes down or something's goofball or whatever, or someone walks in the scene, you don't expect you have good clear sound. Everyone that can be mic'd is always mic'd, always, if I can do it. Practically speaking and whatever, why not? It's the best sound, it's easy. If you do it right, you don't see the mic, why not have everyone mic'd? Our, tip, our standard field kit was always three wireless because um, we have four channel sound. So the camera will run four channels all at once, uh, the boom, and then up to three wireless. I, I never needed more than three laughs. We, we had scenes, dinner scenes of 12 people. And between the boom and the three labs around the room got great audio from everybody. So everybody doesn't need to be loud, but maybe every other person is the lab or however you want to do it. Um, In that particular moment of this girl running out, she's not mic'd. Between his mic and the mic on the camera, her audio was perfect. Um, What I love about the Panasonics and other similar systems is they mix the audio internally for you, which is really Mm. important. You can't ever blow the sound out on these things because they're chasing it all the time. Your your boom mic and your lav mics are being chased all the time. So if somebody all of a sudden screams because they're excited or they have to whisper because something's happening or whatever, car door slams or some sort of noise, you're never getting these wild spikes. You're getting good, clean sound all the time, which is a whole problem that you don't have in the field. There's nothing wrong with carry, with having an audio mixer um, I don't always have an audio mixer sometimes. Um, if I don't, it runs to camera. It's an auto level situation, and that ends up working really, really, really well. Um, uh, if you can do it, do it. If you can have your sound on an auto level or do it, it saves you so many headaches. It saves blown out, overmodded audio, which is very hard to, to recover in post. Um, it saves you from missing moments because you were planning on a big noisy scene and then you get a little quiet, little, you know, something happening. If you're in the doc world, you're going to be surprised constantly by all kinds of stuff, constantly. Your equipment should be working for you. It should be helping you as much as possible to make sure that you get those moments and you have good quality sound. I've always said with documentary, sound is king. You can be a little out of focus a little weird on your framing, a little shaky, a little, a lot of things. If you have good, clear sound, you have a scene. You could have the most beautifully composed shot. If you have crap audio, you got nothing. Sound is everything in this game. So whatever you can do to have great sound. Um, we always ran um, uh, we always ran a Unislot, which sits inside the camera, but it's a diversity receiver. So every... Uh, microphone is sending out two signals at the same time and the receiver has a choice of which one at any given time it wants to pick up on. So if one signal has a little buzz or picks up some EMF or some other goofy thing, it instantly switches to the other channel and it does that, I don't all the time, but that always makes sure that there's one, there's always a channel that's less encumbered than the other channel. And that I have found has given us tremendous, tremendous audio quality under very difficult circumstances. So 
it's a good gear is expensive like anything else, but you absolutely get what you pay for. Yeah, I've been running uh, Sony transmitters and receivers for the last, I don't know, decade or so, but they have, you know, you look at the receivers, for example, they have two antennas and that's what they do. That's like the true diversity where they can swap back and forth in real time like that. Super helpful for being able to instantly change and still grab a great, great reception. I, I think that's something I like a lot of people probably don't think about that can save your butt in a, in a rough situation. Oh, yeah. Think about the save your butts because you're you're going to plan the shoot one way and it's going to go another way. Inevitably, it's going to go another way. So um, do you have extra media? Do you have extra batteries? All the practical stuff? Yes. Okay. But in terms of your sound, you think the sound's going to go one way. You think it's one type of sound environment and it all of a sudden becomes another environment. Are you prepared for that? Um, what if you're used to running IFBs? And your crew and whoever's with you, that's how they're monitoring sound. And you get where you're going and they're like, your lav channel is fine, but your IFB channel is no good because it interferes with whatever. You have to shut that down. Okay, well, now you're the only one on the set that can hear anything is your operator. Do you have plug-in headphones and a splitter? And do you have some other way that everybody else can hear sound? Or do you have an IFB that runs on another uh, transmitter that runs on another block? Or do you have some other way around that? You're thinking I'm going to walk in and I'm used to all my people hearing sound because everyone's got IFB. And now you could shut down because of a technical and now nobody can hear anything. And now your shoot's really hard because it's a loud environment. The only way to hear is by hearing their lab via the IFB, which you just lost. What's your backup? How are you correcting for that? Have you thought about that? Have a backup. Yeah, I, I definitely think that that makes a lot of sense. You, I want to switch gears on you here. So you, you did MTV, but like, what are you doing now? Like what happened after MTV? So I did that for a number of years, um, which I, I loved actually the, I, I sort of moved away from MTV. The news and docs department got radically changed. Um, there was a huge layoff in, I don't know, it was 16, 17, somewhere in there. Then they let a lot of people off at Viacom. And so a lot of the people that I'd worked for and with were let go. The department was downsized. It just <clears throat> kind of was falling apart a little bit. I'm like, I'm not sure what the future is. Let me just kind of look in some other directions just to be safe. You know, um, I'd had a long run with them, but, you know, everything comes to an end, I guess. Uh, and I ended up falling in with um, NYC Media uh, in New York City, which is the city's uh, TV network that they that they have. Uh, their programming is original. They create it and generate it and, and produce it. And then it goes and it airs nationally on PBS. So I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. Um, that's I love that. They came to me and my partner with an idea for a new show and said, um, we want to show about all the really cool jobs people have in New York City. That's it. <laughs> I'm like, OK, that's not really a lot to go on, but give me a week. You know, let me see what I can do. And so we sort of built out a pitch and some early casting. And well, we think it could be this pitch. And if it was, maybe it's these people. And what do you think? And they loved it. Um, we ended up calling it a day's work. And it's about these exceptional careers people have. We went to Broadway and filmed with Lion King. Then we went to the Metropolitan Opera and just saw some incredible, incredibly talented, really, really interesting people kind of doing their thing. Um, uh, that was a, such an amazing experience just to be in these rooms and in these kind of spaces making the show. Uh, and that ended up being um, a huge hit for the network. Um, and it went on and it won an Emmy, which was really exciting. So it's not often that a show in its inaugural season 
gets enough traction and moves forward and you know wins awards and things. So that was kind of really exciting for us. Um, but it was kind of it was a nice experience in doing the 360, developing an idea, doing the casting, doing the production, doing the pose, like do everything, the titles, the music, everything. And then to see it, you know, winning awards is great. Like no one does this for that, but it's like super fun when you win awards. Um, but there's something nice about the recognition of we really busted our ass for this show and it paid off. And how cool is that? So yeah, that worked you can out. say that you're awesome. an Emmy Award winner. I mean, that's a pretty amazing thing to be able to, pretty, to say about yourself. Yeah, that, that was pretty cool. That was pretty cool. And it was totally unexpected. So it was one of those moments of no one saw it coming, but we're glad it did, you know. And then now, now you told me, I think when we talked off podcast last week that you're doing a lot of commercial and corporate work today. Is that correct? Yes. Yep. Tell yeah. us a little about so, that and, and what transitioned you into there and what that experience is like. So that's been totally different. I, I never saw myself, I got into TV because I didn't want to get a real job. You know, I never saw myself behind a desk and doing cost reports. I never saw any of that in my you know future. Um, but I did recognize that there's a real need in the corporate world for the skills that I have. Um, more, now video is king. It's, it's so powerful as a communication medium. Uh, you know, everything uses it, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, everything has a video component now. It's how people want to interact with companies. It's how companies want to reach their audiences. It just, it just is. It's a thing. So companies are trying to build out that capability, but they just don't know where to start. Do we buy equipment? Do we need a studio? Do we hire a guy? Like, where do we start? We don't know. What does it cost? We don't know. So I've come in and I've been doing these consultancies usually for a year-ish, nine months to a year. I'll come inside of a company and I'll stand up their internal production capability. I'll stand up their production resources, whatever they're trying to do, train people, create a studio, whatever they need, get them going and rolling. And then they're off. And then I move on to, to the next. Um, but that's really been, it's been a different way of applying the same skills, but I've really, really enjoyed being inside that culture. Um, it's totally different than working in the TV world. Totally same skills, but totally different shape and, and everything. Um, but that's really been interesting to, to, to see these companies like actually build this capability and to see it come live and to see it actually running and, and working. And um, it's been really satisfying. So been doing I've done that now for three different companies. You know, it's interesting. So that's a totally different approach than I've ever heard because like when I, I do mainly commercial corporate work today for the most part. And like for for me, I, I try to stay on with a company as long as I can. Only once have I ever gone in and set something up for a company. Um, and it was for a, a, a top 10 um in terms of size, like a top 10 construction company in the US. And they brought me in to teach them all about live streaming and help them invest in the gear and how to offer live streaming. They started it during COVID when yeah. they wanted to still have their quarterly or end of year meetings. And so I came in and showed them how to do it. And we did it several times. And then I told them what gear to get and kind of showed their in-house guys how to use the gear, et cetera, set them up. So I've only done that once. It's interesting because that's kind of like what your focus is. How do you, does that ever... Um, like, what's that like for you to to go in and set up a company? Like, do you still do work for them after the fact? Or, or like, how does that work? Um, so far, it hasn't. So far, it's been about um, sort of coming in and helping them set up whatever internal capability they're looking to have set up. And once that's off and rolling, then usually that's when I'm, I'm moving on. 
Um, there are a couple of companies I'm, I'm now dealing with. Um, one is a manufacturer of boat propellers, which is sort of interesting, super cool and interesting. Yeah. I mean, you get yeah, to be yeah. out on the boat and, you know, it's work. It's pretty cool. Um, and the other is sort of in the camera industry and creating a new kind of camera system. So it's interesting to, to be able to apply those skills in those different kinds of ways. Um, in those cases, it also involves creating some of their media, shooting some commercials, editing commercials, putting things out, um, that kind of thing, shooting promos and kind of helping them with that. So it takes different forms, um, but it is, it's usually a limited time. Like I'll, I'll promise them a year, I'll promise them whatever period of time. And usually my goal is to get them where they need to get so I can pull away, so I can go somewhere else. If I'm good at what I do, you should be able to fire me at some point. Like a good doctor, I can heal you and then you should be able to move on and fire me. I think it's something like that. So I'm sure that there, I'm sure there'd be others who would take that role and say, how do I drag this on as long as possible? Because <laughs> the meter's running, right? Yeah. That doesn't feel to me like the goal. If they're looking for lots of commercials and they want to hire me to shoot commercials for five years, then that's one thing. But if they're looking to develop a capability and I don't have them at a point after a year where they can work without me, I, maybe I've done something wrong. Or maybe I'm just trying to just hang around for too long and that doesn't feel right. Um, I'm there to try and be of some sort of help. Um, I'm not there to kind of be a drag on their budget and that kind of thing. Um, I'm there to help them be more efficient. And so whatever form that takes, that's the form that I want to provide for them. Um, but I do enjoy the culture because it's so different than television. It allows me to do things I never could do in TV, like build an entire department and then create around that department. And then that whole department starts making some things. And then that turns into making more media. And then that media goes into whatever they're doing. And that generates new things, it builds and builds and builds. It's so far outside of that traditional rubric of you make the show, you air the show, you make a new show, you air the show. It's totally different. Um, and it, I, it's just been really exciting. I mean, it's uh, all of these companies so far have been startups. So at some point they'll go big and go public and whatever they'll do. And that capability will all of a sudden be moved to some very grand kind of scale. And that'll be exciting to see. So we'll see. And so you're helping them like bring in the people, like educating them on what to do, invest in the equipment, that kind of thing. All of that and then setting up capability in one company, I actually set up an actual physical studio inside their facility, Nice. Um, a, post, a post facility and a, and a studio for shooting, get all that talking, set up servers so you can move media around and link people and all the things that have to happen to make them totally self-sufficient. Um, hired staff, hired post staff, hired basically people to, to replace me. And once that was all in place, then that was it. But that was always the goal from the beginning. Wow, that's a it's just a different way of uh, going about it that I've never really considered in my business. I think that's very fascinating. Are you if you don't mind me asking, are you reaching out to companies to do that or are they they come into you directly? Both. It's been both. both. Yeah, nice. It's been it's been both. Some of the companies started out really not knowing at all what they even needed. They just said, "Uh, video." <laughs> it's like, "Okay, <laughs> slow down." And then we kind of break that down a little bit. Okay, what does that actually look like sure. and that kind of thing? Um, they just don't really even know where to start. Um, so I've come to them and I'm like, I see you struggling. You know, maybe I'll know someone that works for the company or who's an advisor, some peripheral role. I see you struggling. Um, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? No. Okay. Well, if you want it, I could help you get here. I could help you get there. Like, have you thought about this? Once they sort of have a mental picture of what's possible, they're excited and they're on board because 
they just, they don't have the experience to get there on their own. And I, I start with, I don't want you to hire me forever. I'm not your employee forever. I'm here for a period of time. Doesn't mean I won't leave with some stock options potentially, which is pretty nice. Um, but it does mean that my goal is eventually to replace myself here with new people and I will back myself out. I'm here for, I'm a specialist here for a short time to help you do a thing. And once you're good and you're on your own, the training wheels are off, then I'm done. Wow, that's a that's a really interesting way to go about doing commercial corporate work. And I think that's really fascinating. Totally different. So, And is that like mainly what you're doing now for the most part? Yeah, I'm doing that now for two different companies. Um, also some legacy work for existing clients, you know, that just always is there. Um, sure. But I've really, but this direction, the corporate direction has, it's been a surprise, but now it's been three years and I'm kind of in that swing and, and sort of really feeling that and loving that. Um, I, I'm just, I'm really happy in that role. I'm still taking on commercial work. I'm still taking on TV work. I'm still taking on all the things I normally do. Um, but these corporate gigs are sort of on top of that or maybe right, right next to that. Um, I think they like that they're hiring a working professional versus 10 years ago, I was cool and I haven't worked, you know, like, or I don't know, I haven't done anything and let me show you video, you know, yeah, this is yeah, like, yeah. they like that it's someone who's, who's out there right now, who has credits rolling, like right now, who's current, who has their thumb on the industry, who kind of understands what's going on. If they need a person, camera operator, editor, like one call, hire this person, hire that person done. I, I think that gives them a lot of comfort. And so it's probably good that I'm still in sort of my traditional role, making shows and making sort of commercials and things. Um, they they like that they're getting kind of a guy who's, who's you know, neck deep kind of in it. Um, and I've really maintained that the whole time. So it, it, it is both. Yeah, that that makes perfect sense. Are you um, are you offering any sort of like live streaming services as well or anything like that? That's a thing more and more. So more and more, more and more. So companies now are doing these webinars and they're doing different kinds of outreach. Uh, there was one company I worked with in New York that is a security online security. So they do cybersecurity and they pay out millions of dollars in ransoms via Bitcoin to bad guys to get doctors, medical records released. And, you know, they're kind of in this sort of <laughs> shady world dealing with some very bad actors and that kind of thing. Uh, they wanted to set up a, they do like a weekly, um, sort of like a podcast, like a video cast. And they wanted the studio inside their offices. So they had an empty room and it was like, what, what lights do we need? Like, how do we do this? And then technically, how do we hook it in? And just the whole thing, 360 beginning to end. We set them up and now they're just rolling. Every week, I'd still on their thing and I get their alerts and I watch their podcast. It looks professional. I know that it's a room next to the next to the broom closet and I, I know that it's like one guy running the show. I know that it's recording to a laptop, you know, and like, I know that it's totally low key, but it looks so pro. Um, I think they've loved kind of that shortcut to like, we look like a million dollar business and we're like four guys in a room, <laughs> but it makes them look great. And that's brought in huge, sure. they work with the FBI now. I mean, they've really upped their game. So it's, it's, it's exciting to see them use that little bit of capability to really expand their business and, and see them grow. And that's really exciting. Yeah, I think uh, live streaming has been like an interesting addition to my business that I, I, I started dabbling with it pre-COVID, but I didn't really start offering it like I do now until COVID. But I definitely think that it adds another level of professionalism to uh, companies like corporate or, or, or commercial clients. And um, I, I think it just kind of elevates the way that they um, 
represent themselves to to the world or to potential customers. And having that in your bag, I think, is a really cool option today. So before we wrap up this podcast, I know that my viewers love to talk about gear. They're all gearheads. So I'm going to go ahead and ask you a little bit about your gear. What kind of equipment are you running today? Let's start with your camera equipment, and we'll just kind of go from there. Uh, the workhorse is a Panasonic Vericam 35 uh, with the PL mount. Um, the big brother of the Vericam LT, correct? Big brother of the Vericam LT. We ran Vericams for a long time, the 2700. Um, which was the first tapeless fairy cam. We ran that for years and years and years. And I've just, it is bomb proof, bulletproof equipment. So um, now it's the fairy cam uh, 35. Um, we use different kinds of lenses, um, some primes, some zooms. It's all PL. So it's all real, real easy to find. Um, I keep a shoddy on it all the time. I keep a little light mounted on top all the time, just for like emergency, you know, kind of use. Um, it is, it is set up kind of in ENG style. Everything's on it that you'd need. You could pick it up and roll and it's running labs. It's running um, a shotgun sound. It's running light. It's running everything on board. When we're doing more setup commercial kind of stuff, I can really turn it into more of a cinematic type of role. It has a cheese plate all the way around, including on the carry handle. Everything has taps. So I can mount gear anywhere on, on, around, behind, over, and through this camera. If I want to dump a monitor on it, if I want to add a, any kind of other capability to it, whatever I'm trying to do, other recorders, anything, it can just slap right on. Um, it's all Antenbauer gold mount, so it's everything's super universal. Um, and I can kind of show up to any shooting environment, and it's all my stuff is cross-compatible, and it just makes it super easy. Yeah, that's uh, kind of how I have my FX6 set up. I have, um, I have mine set up. It's always got the ability to run four channels of audio once, usually three wireless and a shotgun, but I have an extra wireless in the kit just in case I need to swap the gun out for fourth wireless. And yep. same thing, like I have, I have mine uh, kind of built up a little bit, but I could strip it down. I could add to it, make it bigger. I think having a ready-to-go kit, mine's all in a one bag where like if I got a call right now that says, Josh, can you be here in an hour? I could grab that bag and a tripod and I'm ready to go. And I always right. keep my batteries charged. I run V-mounts, but I keep them charged just in case because I always want to be able to just hop up and roll and be able to take that call and take that job. It's totally true. Um, as, as, an, as an independent, um, you got to be flexible. And so you can have really cool gear, but if it's cumbersome and you need a lens is in this anvil case over here and the body's over here and the camera's not built and you got to charge, you got one battery charge, but you need to charge it. You're done. Uh, it can't be like that. Um, you have to be ready. So what's cool, this was not always the case. You know, the gear used to be big and cumbersome and more difficult. Now we're really in a place where you should be able to have in your bag, the camera ready to go, media's inserted, it's got at least a shotgun on top if it doesn't also have a lav receiver. It's got a battery on it or next to it. It's just ready to go. You haven't left it in some goofy setting where it takes 10 minutes to reset it and do a bunch of things. You can just roll. Um, it, it, it's important. I mean, I know for so many years in New York as a camera operator, I would get those calls all the time. Hey, we're doing a show tonight and our guy just quit. Our guy's sick. I don't know, whatever it was, broke his leg. I mean, it happens. Can you get here in two hours? Yeah. But I can't charge batteries probably in two hours. I can't do a lot of things in two hours. I better be ready. Um, my lab batteries better be charged. Everything better be right. My, my labs weren't left on some strange other channel the last time I shot. So I have to pair all the labs again when I turn it on. And that takes 20 minutes. And 
you know what I mean? Like I can really just, just plug and go. Um, if you can be in that place, you're going to, you get that call and they find that you can just respond and be there and be ready to go. You will get the call again. I think it's a huge asset. No, I totally agree. One of the one of the comments I get a lot from my customers is that I'm able to be flexible and adaptable, and that's a big part of the reason why they hire me. And I think having something ready to go all the time at a moment's notice has helped me get that reputation. And you know, a lot of these are sometimes can be you know good jobs that just for some reason they don't really think of it, or or something comes up and they, it's just they need it last minute. But the ability to be flexible and adaptable is is huge and it has allowed me to get continued work from clients like that and i even have so have gone so far as like on my cameras depending on the job i have preset settings where if you click on the setting it loads up certain settings within the camera so i'm not fooling with anything when i get there so like i have one for just shooting and log that's what i use like 90 percent of the time i have another one if i'm shooting direct 709 for a client um, because that changes everything from base isos to whether i have a monitor let on um, i have another one set up just for live streaming because the formats and how i want my connections to be my outputs to be for live streaming even the, the the internal recording codec i want to be different than what i'm doing when i'm recording to a commercial client. So I have everything set up for presets so I can show up the job and say, hey, this is a live stream job. Hit that preset. My camera's instantly ready to go. And all my cameras are set that way. And I think just having having that capability is huge. It, it's, it's really, really important. Um, I would add to that, you mentioned a lot on the monitor. Some monitors will have them preloaded or can, can do that. Some can't, depending on where you're going. It's great to have some LUTs on standby. Not every client knows how to look at at, at uh, a raw image and see that it will look better later. They're like, why is it so flat and there's no blacks and the color sucks and why, you know, <laughs> they don't understand what they're seeing. So if you can just throw a LUT on and be like, actually, it'll look like that. And they're like, oh, beautiful. Okay, carry on. That's all they want. Don't rely on them to have the technical expertise. They don't. And that's not a bad thing. They're in a different part of the industry. But if you have, however your monitoring works, um, if you have a way to, to get a lot into that monitoring, so they're looking at more or less what they'll see in the end, that gives them a lot of confidence. If they're looking at a raw image all day and they're going to walk away like, I don't know if we got it. Like the picture was gray and it did, there was no color, and, you know, they don't understand the translation. Just do them the favor, make it easy, show them 90% of what they're going to get. Even if it's not the let they'll use, it doesn't matter. It's just for them to stand there on set and feel like they're getting what they thought they were getting. It le They leave the room feeling better than, well, I hope he'll figure it out. I guess we'll see in a week. I mean, I don't think he screwed it up, but I don't know. You don't want them walking out of the room thinking that, right? So it's a lot of these like very small little things of how do I, I'm going to do the job great either way because I know what I'm doing, but how can I instill confidence in my client? Because they I can see through to the end and I know what an online is and I know what sound mixes do and like I can see through to that. I know that I can put a warp stabilizer on and get that kind of funky shot looking better and I know I can do that. They don't know that and they shouldn't know that and why would they know that? It's fine. Kind of make it easy for them so they walk away like, man, that guy nailed it. Wow, what a DP, right? When it's it's a LUT from seven jobs ago that's just been sitting in your camera that just generally looks mostly good, like why not? Um, but that little, that feeling of them walking away feeling good about you as the operator goes a long way in, in terms of your reputation. So I would I just, just think about those little things. 
Yeah, I actually had a job earlier in my career. It was for a TV show and the host didn't quite, he was a kind of a new host. He didn't quite understand the way that log formats worked. And he was, we were reviewing a shot on my FS7 that I had at the time. And I didn't have, the way the FS7 worked, like the end, if you if you replayed the image, the monitor LUT turned off and I didn't have an external monitor hooked up. So when I was showing him what the shot looked like, there was no monitor LUT on. And he's like, why is it black and white? And I tried to explain it to him. And he couldn't understand it. You know, he was genuinely, he was so mad. He thought I had ruined everything we had done up to that point. And I was like, no, dude, like I, I, I talked to you about this ahead of time. But there's a difference between like talking to someone about them and them actually visually seeing it. So he made me like go inside a room and plug it in my laptop and show him what it would look like colored. And once I did that, he's like, oh, okay, you know what you're doing. But you're right though. Like if I'd have had a monitor lot loaded or had a way to have it loaded when I reviewed that shot, none of that ever would have happened. It's you didn't screw up the job. You know, you didn't screw up the job. You know, it's going to be fine, but the client doesn't know that yet. You don't want them leaving the job calling someone saying, geez, I don't know this guy. I don't know. And look, we've got him booked for the next three days, but I'm not sure he nailed it today. It looked black and white. Maybe you get the other guy who's, who, whose picture looked better. Or he, There's no value in scaring your client ever. So um, you want to make sure you're giving them some confidence. So I'll do a lot. Usually if I, if, if I know who they are and what, the, what their uh, parameters are, I can load a let for them. So it looks exactly like how it'll look. They're happy enough if it just generally looks mostly good and doesn't look like a crappy, you know, log image. Um, I'll always do that. I always will do a still either off my camera or let them take a, a, a screen grab off of my monitor with their camera. So they're on the plane home. They can flip through and be like, oh, he got that shot. Oh, right. And that shot. And oh, right. Because we forget certain things. It gives them something to materially hold on to versus I'll, I'll upload the footage to you overnight tonight. It's like, uh, okay, I guess. But if they're sitting on the plane and they're flipping through, looking through shot after shot and all that kind of, it just, it gives them that little extra bit of confidence of like, oh, I know we got it because I can see it right here and it looks good. It doesn't look black and white because he did that special thing with the camera and isn't this great. It just gives them that warm fuzzy and they'll go home with the warm fuzzy and they'll talk to their coworkers with the warm fuzzy. It just leaves, and then when they see your footage and it's great, it confirms the warm fuzzy. You don't want them to have a day or two or three to kind of be like, oh, I don't know, like, <laughs> I think he didn't screw it up. I don't really know. Why would you want to do that? Um, make them comfortable and make it easy. Make it, make it easy. If you don't, if you're shooting sound, uh, like lab sound, have an IFB or a place for an, uh, for a client to plug in a pair of headphones and hear the actual sound. They're hearing it from the back of the studio, which always sounds boomy and crappy and terrible. Let them know that you're getting great sound. Let them see the monitor. Don't don't reserve all of that for the technical people that know how to look at a histogram. You know, let it, anyone should be able to see the monitor. Your client definitely should have a monitor. They should have real sound. They don't always want it. Have it available. Let them know that you're thinking about them versus I'm here to do this job that's very technical that you can't do without me. I'm going to push a bunch of buttons and do all this techie stuff and then I'm going to go home and isn't that nice? Make it easy for them. Make it feel accessible. I would go so far as to explain what I'm doing. Well, here's, I'm going to change the lighting. Why are you removing the light? Because the speaker is wearing glasses and the key light is reflecting in their glasses and if we move it two feet that way, we'll get the same shot and we won't have that and it'll look better. Oh, okay, I understand. Versus... 
you set the shot up and you see the reflection of the glasses and you just tell your gaffer, oh, can you just move that real quick? And the client's like, wait a minute, I thought you had the lighting. You don't know what you're doing? No, I caught something that we're gonna fix so you don't have to look at it for the end of time in this footage that we're about to make. You're gonna appreciate it. This is what I'm gonna do. Oh, okay, I understand that. Hey, thanks for thinking of that. That's great. Turns the whole thing around. Include them a little bit in the process. It makes them feel empowered. Uh, I, I always let clients put their eye through the eyepiece in the viewfinder. There's no reason. They have a monitor. They feel cool. Why not do that? I'll go and fix the focus after they screw it up. That's fine. Why not give them that touch point where they go home afterwards and they're like, yeah, it was a cool shoot and I got to look through the camera. It was cool. For you, it's nothing. You do it every day. It's nothing. For them, it's like, wow, I got to look through the camera. That was pretty interesting. Why not give them that little extra? That's what's going to get you the phone call the second time. Do the extra. Yeah, I totally agree. I've even gone as far as sometimes on certain projects, I'll take some BTS pics on on the nice camera that I'll have in my bag because I always have some photo cameras on me and I'll even send like 10 or 12 or 15 BTS pics to clients and they love that they'll drop them on social media or various platforms be like look at this cool thing we did today and then their following gets excited which gets them more excited about what we're going to deliver and then makes them want to start booking me again before we even have turned the first product in that is perfectly stated. That's exactly what I'm talking about. There's a delay between when you shoot the footage and they have any access to it because you'll, you'll take it in depending on your process. Most, most DPs, some DPs will throw like a, if they want it raw, that's fine. Some will throw like a little basic color to make it look like something. Depends entirely on your client, but at a minimum, you might be bringing it into a premiere project and just laying all your shots out so it's easy for them or whatever your protocol is, whatever you do. There's a delay. There's a, a day, it's two days, it's some kind of delay, right? If they have the shots off the screen, maybe maybe in terms of your BTS, you get that shot of them looking through the viewfinder. They're gonna show that to everyone. Oh, look, I was on a set for that commercial that we just shot in California. Look, I'm behind the camera, look at that. They're gonna show it to everybody. The last five DPs didn't do that, which is why they didn't remember their name. They remember your name because you made them feel cool and you made them feel included and you, they felt like they understood what was happening. They felt in control of the process. They left with stills of the shots. They left with some great BTS that they could put on their social and share around the office. You're making it fun. You're making it interactive. You're helping them feel included in the process. It's little tiny things that cost you zero, but go a long, long way towards help, helping your client feel comfortable with you. Once the client's comfortable with you, they don't want to hire anybody else. You you've got every gig that they do from the end of time until you decide you don't want to work for them anymore. They're going to want you again and again and again. I'm sure, I'm sure um, anyone watching this who has a regular client understands that. It's so much easier to get rebooked by the same client than go hunting for a new one. So what are the little tiny things we can do that are easy for us that make our client feel included and feel good? Maybe they have a certain food that they like on the crafty table. And you know that because you work with them before. You know that they love their diet 7-Up. And so you make sure that there's always diet 7-Up and you make sure that there's extra. So when the PAs come and wipe out all the diet 7-Up and your client wants it, you have a cooler somewhere with, with put aside diet 7-Up. So you say to them, listen, I knew you liked diet 7-Up. I see that it's been wiped out. I held three cans aside for you because I know that's your thing. They're over here. They're on ice and they're chilling. You want a straw. What does that cost you? $3 for diet, it costs you nothing. 
But what will stick in their mind is this guy really did the, he went the extra for me. He made me feel seen. He made me feel comfortable. I had my little beverage the whole time. I was happy on the set. I got to look behind the camera. None of these things are hard, but they go a long way towards making your client feel like you really value them. And that absolutely will get you that call back. I've even like another thing. I know like today, obviously you run a bigger camera. Your camera is even bigger than mine. The, the Vericam 35 that you have is pretty, pretty large camera. But you came from the days of, of running bigger shoulder cams like that. Um, I came about 10, 15 years ago and cameras have gotten significantly smaller over the years. But I still like running, even though the FX6 is small, I build it up kind of bigger. And I think even something like that, like showing up, like I have a really large client. I'll never forget one of the first shoots I did with them. The whole marketing team is there. And I showed up and I pulled my rigged out camera out of the bag. And their previous people that they had worked with before worked with mirrorless cameras. And there's just something about me pulling a bigger camera out, even if it's shooting largely the same image that just makes them feel like, oh, this guy's more legit. He's more professional. We're getting what we paid for. So I, I, I don't, I don't know. Like I have, obviously you have reasons. I have reasons for running a bigger camera just in general, but even that alone is worth it to me. Cause it's part of the client experience of pulling out something that makes it feel like, oh, this guy's here to shoot a movie. You know what I mean? It's, it's a very good point. It's a very good point. It, it, it is along the same line of thinking of, how do we give the client confidence? You as the professional need to bring the equipment that you need, whatever that is. Uh, people have shot movies on iPhones. So we know that in the hands of an experienced pro, you could make that iPhone look as good as probably almost anything. It has its limits, obviously. But even thinking about like the black magic cameras and what, you know, we have some tiny little options. Red makes, you know, some super tiny little cameras that work great and look great. But to your point, um, I probably wouldn't bring a camera just to show off or just to make an impression on a client necessarily, but I absolutely know that it's true what you're saying. If you bring serious looking kit, they think you're a serious person and it, they feel like I'm paying a lot of money for this service and he's showing up with all the pro gear and he's got all the things. That's my guy. Versus if you, you're an expert, you can definitely probably do that, that same shoot with almost anything with a black magic, with a 5d, maybe with your iPhone, with almost anything and get the same result. And the end would look the same, but what's the feeling to your client? The feeling is, boy, I paid this guy a lot of money. Sure. With a goddamn pocket family vacation looking camera. I mean, don't give them a reason to doubt you. It doesn't mean you buy the biggest camera to impress the client necessarily. It just means however you roll, whatever your approach is, consider that the more people pay for things, the more they feel, the more they value them. And the more sort of pomp and circumstance sometimes can be good. From your perspective as the operator, you're thinking, what's the most efficient gear I can bring? What's the most efficient way I can set up this shoot? How do I get this day done on time? Because I want to go home because I want to sleep tonight. That's what's on your mind, pretty much. Let me do a good job, but I, you know, I want to get in my bed at a reasonable hour. What the client's reading is how much did this person really sort of understand what what my needs were and how much did they really show up to deliver the goods to deliver the best goods that they could possibly deliver and if you're bringing good kit whatever it is and you have all your stuff laid out nice and it's just you just look like a pro you just look like someone who knows what they're doing they immediately calm down they immediately feel better about everything and even if the footage looks the same they'll value it more 
Well, he brought the big camera. That's why it looks so good. Oh, he had the whatever thing on there. That's why it looks so good. You don't have to tell them that your, your pocket black magic camera would look the same. You don't have to share that. Give them a reason to feel confident in you. Give them a reason to want to take a picture of your setup. Like, wow, look what this guy brought. They're going to send it to all their other friends. Look at it. I, I don't know what your guy does, but wow, my guy really showed up. Best guy really knows what he's doing. They don't know what the hell they're looking at. They just feel like you've done a lot for them in some way and that you're taking their job serious. And that goes a long way. That's what sticks in their head. Oh, that's the guy who brings the real stuff. Oh, you got you to gotta call that guy. That guy doesn't just show up with some, that guy shows up. Oh, boy. It goes a long way. I would, I, would, I would think about every job from the client's perspective. If I were them and I didn't know anything about this, what would I be reading when someone shows up? What am I reading about what you wear as a DP? How are you dressed? Are you sort of groomed or do you kind of show up like I'm behind the camera? I can do whatever I want, <laughs> you know? That's what they're looking at. They're looking at how is your gear? How is your kit bag? You have wires and stuff falling out when you take the camera out. Things are on the ground. Is your stuff neatly laid out? Do you have cables that people are tripping over all over the place? Are things taped down nicely? Do you come off as someone who's a pro? And all those little things seem silly on their own, but together in the eyes of a client, it, it represents someone who really knows what they're doing. There's comfort there. Comfort means low risk. Low risk means I'm not going to lose my job because I hired a DP that screwed up my shoe. And that's really what's on their mind. I had an instructor who came from the advertising world. He was a big, big ad exec. Uh, Roland Young was his name. And he used to say in the class, what's the most valuable skill you have? And one guy says, I'm a photographer. I'm a graphic designer. I can write well. He goes, no, 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 no. The most valuable skill you have is the ability to save your boss's ass. That's it. So when your boss is on a shoot and can't figure out how to do something and you have a solution, you've saved their ass. When your boss is running over and they have to leave because the shoot's going long and you're like, I got it, don't worry. You stay the extra hour and you get that thing you were trying to get, you've saved their ass. If you get a, a write-up for a shoot that makes no sense and you send it back to them, look, I know you wanna get four shots tomorrow, Given all the complications, we can't get more than two. If you make it two days, we'll set it up this way. I know it's another day, but you're risking the whole thing falling apart because you're trying to be too ambitious. Let's slow it down and let's make sure we get it right. And ultimately you get the results and it works out. You've saved your boss's ass. Think about being that exec. You don't know anything about movies or filmmaking or cameras or anything. You know you need this thing to appear on a screen somewhere. You need someone to make this thing that you've written on paper that you need for your client for whatever you're doing. The person that you want is the one that shows up and is like, oh, I got it. Oh, I see you want to do this, but have you thought about that? Okay, let's try that. And I'm going to do it your way, but then try it my way, just, just for funsies. Oh, I love your way. Okay, you want to try it again? Okay, let's try that. Oh, interesting. Wow. This guy took did exactly what I said and got it exactly as I said, but then he kind of took it that next step and kind of did his own thing and kind of extended the idea a little bit. And wow, look at the results. I'm so glad I hired this guy. He saved my ass. Yeah, that's, that's huge. I know like even, even crew members I've hired, like contractors I've hired, the ones I always want to work with the most are the ones that just come up with creative solutions. Like if we're in a, in a sticky situation and I'm just trying to figure out like, man, how are we going to navigate through this? If they, if they come up with a way and they can provide that solution or at least are trying to actively provide that solution. And I know that they're really wanting to contribute to the job. I'll call them back every time. I think it really does go a long way. 
it goes a long way. And you know that from the crew people that you've hired, you know, NEDP, whoever you're working with, you know who you've hired, who really is there for you and really thinking about you and who isn't. The, the AC you want is the one that walks behind you while you're shooting, can observe the window into your brick, can see that you're at 10% battery, and without being asked, they're standing there with a the brick in their hand. So when you turn around, hey, can you get me up? It's in their hand. Boom, 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 done. Psh, keep going. Or they see that your media is getting low and they already, they have the DIT standing by. They've already pulled one car. They've swapped it for a freshie. It's already being offloaded. You didn't even have to ask because they're thinking about what your needs are. That goes such a long way. Um, and it's the same thing with your client. You know, what's the thing that's going to make this client feel comfortable and feel like I understand what their needs are and that we're a team and that we're working together? Um, and what's that little extra? What's the seven up moment? What's the diet seven up moment? What's the little extra thing that's so easy for me to do that will stick in their head almost more than anything else and get me that call back? Let me make sure I'm not missing those things. If they're a, if the client's a, a vegetarian, do, do we have vegetarian food on the craft table? Have we thought about that? You don't want to get there and if you've got barbecue for everybody and then your client's like, oh, that's real cute, but I don't eat meat. I'll just sit over here alone in the corner while you like it. And now you've embarrassed them and you made them feel left out. And I mean, it's the exact opposite of what you want. Think through these things. It's easy stuff, but it's the kind of thing where if you miss and you don't think about it, you can, you can send your client away not feeling great. Even if you've totally are brilliant and you nailed the shoot, the fact that everyone had lunch, but they didn't have lunch because you forgot to ask about whether or not they're vegan. That's a big oversight. Don't do that. Um, consider it from their point of view, what's going to make them comfortable and what's going to make them call you back. Um, you're already going to do a great job. That's easy. That's almost built in. What's that extra? Always be thinking, what's that extra? Yeah. I know like last year, for example, I was on a shoot and uh, we, my company got contracted to shoot a show and what we weren't doing post on it. And before I sent the the footage off, I, I just took like a morning and I, I made some coffee and I sat on my computer and I I like way, way went beyond the call, call of duty of organizing my footage of everything that we shot. And I even went as far as to time code sync all the cameras for all the multicam interviews we did and had it on a timeline for them. And I, maybe they won't use it. But at least I took the time to do it and I sent it off to them. And man, they were floored that I took the time to do it. And their post house said that it made it made cutting the show a lot faster for them because all the interviews were already stacked with audio, ready to go. All the B-roll footage, everything was already grouped and organized in a very specific manner where they knew where everything was. And I got a call back instantly to do it again. Yep, that's right. And for you, it's easy. Because you were there, so you know where, what take goes with which audio or however you're doing. It's very fresh in your head at that point. An editor's coming in totally cold to that drive full of footage. Where's this? I have to find that. It's annoying. It's what you do as an editor, but it's annoying. It's just so great when, you're, when your DP, who's not supposed to be an their job's not an editor, right? This is an extra. It's so great when your DP it sends you a thing. It's like, yeah, I've already laid it out. The audio's all synced. The time code's all linked up. And I threw the LUT on there. You take it off if you want. But just so first look, you kind of see what things are looking like. And whatever else you did, whatever, whatever, it's all on one timeline. It's, oh, man. Because then that ed the, the client's not an editor. They don't see that. And your producer is probably not an editor. They don't see that. But your editor sees it. And your editor will call the producer and be like, by the way, hire him again. 
because he has saved me a whole morning of sinking and finding stuff and looking for t- claps and, you know, looking for all this. I don't have to do anything. I was able to come right in, start working right away. You're paying me a lot of money. You don't want me sitting here, you know, looking for slates. It's silly. That's an AEE's job. He's already done that for us. It's ready to go. Absolutely. It, that's It's an easy thing for you to do, but what a difference on the other end. And now you've got everyone saying, oh, you got to hire that guy. Why? Well, he sends you the footage ready to go. Your editor can start work that day. It saves so much time. It's just great. Plus, he does a good job and the footage looks good. And there's just no reason not to hire this guy. He gave me seven up. You know, what else do I want? <laughs> yeah, he gave me seven up, even though the PAs, we thought, drank it all. <laughs> well, um, yeah, man, I think it's really interesting. I think going a long way, uh, you know, to, to, to go out of your way definitely makes a huge difference today, especially when there's, there's a lot of people getting into video today. It's a really cool industry. It's the barrier of entry. I've talked about it on this podcast before is lower than ever. So it's a lot easier for people to get their foot in the door today than it ever has been in the past. So I think like taking the time to go the extra mile for customers, those, those are the little things that are going to keep them remembering your name and, and have them call you again and again and again, because you take the time to do the little things. And I, I think that is a competitive edge that if you don't already have it today, that's something you need to be taking the time to do. When I first started out at MTV, it's a huge company. They have a ton of people. I'm trying to be seen and just get them to kind of remember me. And when I was out on those early shoots doing castings and simple stuff and, you know, kind of smaller stuff, um, I would always bring something back to whoever I was working for, to the to whatever executive I was answering to. Uh, I was in Louisiana and I was doing a, a casting shoot down there and it was strawberry season. And there was just fresh strawberries everywhere. I love strawberries. So I'm eating a ton out of these things. And um, I'm like, you know what would be cool? Like you can't get fresh strawberries at this time of year in New York. Let me bring back some fresh strawberries. They'll love it. And I was flying home that night so I could deliver them tomorrow. They'll be fresh. So I packed them very carefully and I put them in my bag and everything, got them to New York. And I went into MTV in Times Square the next day. And oh, how was the shoot? Oh, it was great. And here's what happened. And by the way, you like strawberries? And I put strawberries on her desk. She couldn't believe it. She's like, I send people out every day to do these shoots. No one brings me anything. And I love strawberries. That was the beginning of what turned out to be a 12-year relationship with that network. But it was always about that little extra. The the strawberries cost me $2 or something. It's just so easy. Why wouldn't I do that? Even if she hates strawberries and tossed them out afterwards, it's the thought. I was far away, focused on work, but I stopped, I thought of you. And I brought something back for you and I came in here personally to deliver it to you in person. It makes the executive feel valued and seen. It makes me look like the kind of person that is is conscientious and the kind of person they might want to hire. And um, it, it's just such a small thing, but it goes a long way. I would just always be thinking about that stuff. It goes a long way. It does. It goes a very, very long way. Kind of like this podcast because I'm looking up now and it is like, over two hours long. <laughs> so we should probably wrap it up. <laughs> um, before, before I let you go, um, do you, do you have any really cool projects or anything that you have coming up? I do. Um, it's, I, mm, how much can I say? I probably can't say a ton just yet, but I do. I have some really, really exciting things that I'm working on now. Some things that are, are, are kind of new, um, 
pushing into some really interesting spaces. I've, I have a show in development right now, another episodic show in development. Um, I have one of these uh, companies that I'm, I'm doing a consulting for is about to announce a huge product and a whole bunch of things that I've done for them is about to come out. So I'm right on the verge. Another month or two, I'm sure I can start really talking about this stuff, but it's an, it's a super exciting time. Um, and it's, a, it's, it's good to be in that flow of people, executives and CEOs who are willing to take chances and try some sort of exciting new things. Um, that's always what gets me super excited because then I get to kind of play and experiment and try things. So I, I'm just, I, I, I mean, really excited about what's coming up and, and even behind that, um, this is going to be a good year. So, um, a lot of a lot of good things are going to be coming out for us this year, so it's exciting. Where can people go to learn more about you and to see some of those things that might be popping up here in the next few months? For sure, um, my company is BanditoFilms.com. Um, you can go on there. I have uh, promos on there for all kinds of shows. Um, I have examples of uh, episodics and commercials, and you'll see it all on there. As soon as, as something airs and it's able to be shared, I put it out. Um, I, I, nothing ever comes out, you know, early. I have to be careful with that. But as soon as it's sort of available, you know, publicly, I, I put it there so people can find it. Um, and um, we got some interesting stuff coming up this year. So um, it, it's going to be a, a, a year of a lot of experimentation and trying a lot of new things. But um, that's, that's kind of why I got into this business. So it's really exciting. That is very exciting. And I want to thank you so much for taking the time to come onto the podcast and tell us about your past, your experiences, share some stories. It's been a lot of fun. No, I, I really appreciate it. Um, I, having now done this for 20 years or so, um, I got a lot of experience and a lot of little things that I picked up along the way. And I really feel like um, I benefited greatly from some real experienced producers and DPs that kind of handed that knowledge down to me. And so any way I can sort of pay that forward and um, sort of help that next generation kind of get into this thing and maybe skip some of those early steps and maybe skip some of those mistakes and uh, give them an opportunity to, to really show what they can do and express themselves. I'm all about it. So I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. Thank you so much. And it was, you said it was banditofilms.com, correct? Yep. It's B-A-N-D-I-T-O films.com. I named it that because our, our uh, logo is Pancho Villa with like the bullets, you know, uh, uh, the bandolier right across his chest. And it's just something kind of fun, kind of revolutionary, kind of freedom fighter about that. But the real reason why I came up with it is because when I started working at MTV uh, independently as a production company, I needed a name. And they were, you know, I'm now instead of receiving a, a check for a day or a week, I'm getting an entire uh, shows worth of of uh, budget all at once, which was sort of like a little like crazy. And so I kind of felt like I was a gangster going in the network and like, stick them up, you know, like, give me the money, you know, type of thing. So I thought, what could be better? We're just going to call it Bandito, you know, because I feel like a little Bandito coming in and, you know, taken from the network. But um, and that's just kind of stuck. So that's that's us. That's Bandito film. I love it. I think that's an awesome, awesome name. Guys, if you get the chance, go to banditofilms.com. Um, check out Josh's work. Josh, thanks again for coming on the podcast. It's always fun to have another Josh on the podcast. Doesn't happen too often. <laughs> but uh, thanks again for coming on. Um, guys, also remember, we have a Facebook group called Filming with Josh. So if you want to comment about the podcast, share your work, ask for feedback, 
uh, ask questions, things like that, be sure to go to Filming with Josh on Facebook and ask to join the group today as a private group. We'd love to see you there. Um, And if you like the podcast, please rate it and subscribe. We'll see you all next week. To learn more about Rustic River Media, visit us online at rusticriver.media. Thanks for listening to the Filming with Josh podcast. Catch every episode by hitting subscribe today.